0: Let's
1: take it to the edge Let's get deflected
2: Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland from Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with Kyle Daly of KH Daly Knives. And this is the Knife Perspective, episode number 060 A Knight's Tale.
0: How are you doing today, Kyle? Or pretty night? good. It's Early. night, isn't it? Yeah. Night. Okay. <laughs> uh, doing pretty good, Dan. I, I'm feeling like an old man. I'm like, we, we got a new driveway on Monday, and I don't know uh, how I'm so uh, excited. It's gonna be great. We had a we had a gravel driveway and uh now it's all asphalt, so it's gonna be great for snow blowing and uh the boys Get off can play in. Like, yeah. Like uh I'm officially becoming an old guy, so um, uh I can't believe I'm so excited about such a Welcome to
2: the club. I'll send
0: you a pair of project. new
1: balances. You're
0: like <laughs> Hank Hill, yeah. You need white ones too. <laughs> oh. But uh yeah, so we've been doing that and been uh I finished all the grinding on my big order of uh, pocket bushcrafters for Knife Center, uh, so That'd I'm be glad to be done center. with all that magna cut. Yeah, it's the
2: gift that keeps on giving.
0: And uh, starting on all the handles. Oh, that
2: so you got that to look forward to?
0: Yeah, I've got 36 handles to do, but it was great cutting them all up. I could set the stops on my uh, crosscut sled and just ch- 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 I cut out. Uh, Two thirds of all of them in like an hour and a half. So that was great.
2: Have like 10% waste instead of 20 because you had to plan for the the largest margins.
0: Yeah. I cut them all at three and three quarters instead of five inches and was able to get a few more out of a 12 inch piece than I thought I could. Look at you being all engineering and (laughs) stuff. Yeah. That stuff costs a lot of money, man. It does. That shit doesn't grow on trees. Amazing how much money I have wrapped up in handle material. I don't even want to think about it.
2: I could pay for somebody's college. I mean, not a nice college, like a junior. Okay, a technical college. I could pay for a technical college with the handle (laughs) material I've got at the shop. Yeah. (laughs) How are you doing, Dan? Uh, On keeping on the old man theme, I am beat the hell up. Like, it is just a, a... the thinnest of margins that I made it to the, the show instead of just falling directly into a hop tub. Yeah. Um, did you know, Beth let me, uh, Beth let me back on the mats. She, yeah. she forgave me for my prompt or released me from my promise and I wouldn't get enough mat time. So I went ahead and started doing uh, no gi Brazilian jujitsu. Okay. And that is a level of fitness that is slightly different than Japanese or gi Jitsu. And it turns out I'm 20 years older than the next oldest guy that I'm training with.
0: Uh, so that guy's like 18. Uh, yes, yes, that's, <laughs> that's exactly it. Jitsu is miserable.
2: <laughs> There's guys talking about their six years olds, and I'm like, yeah, that, that that's rough. Um, yep. but that's I am. Like me. Uh,
0: <laughs> you yeah, talking about, you
2: talking about me? <laughs> um, and the the. The bumps and bruises just don't pop back the way they used to, ah. but I'm a man and all. I mean, I don't show any weakness on the mat. I I mean, I get out there and give it everything I've got until I can come home and cry and put my head in Beth's lap.
0: Yeah, it's going to be I'm going to be in for a rude awakening if our boys ever do wrestling and stuff in middle school and stuff. And I go and uh, train with them some They'll be like, uh,
2: arm roll <laughs> uh, on the upside. I'm down almost 30 pounds. Wow. I think I found it. It's right here. <laughs> well, you're at that stage of life.
0: Yeah. The dad um, mod.
2: Yeah. So man, part of, I mean, part of it is just the absolute truth. Now that we're empty nest all of the time. So when I was young, there was all the time that I put in, I was the focus. And then we had kids and the kids were the focus. And now that the kids are the gone, you know, Beth and I are the focus again. So it's, Even though they were so independent and in high school and that sort of thing, now that they're out of the house, I've got so much more time to be selfish. And, yeah, instead of being at the school function, I'm working out. And, yeah, the short version is you should be you should be chubbing up. You know, (laughs) you you got young kids. Your wife needs to be confident that you're going to be there to help take care of them. Yeah. And then once they're out of the house, you can start getting hot again.
0: All righty. I'll keep that in mind, but, uh, all right. All right. We're, we're gap, we're oh, you know what? All right, guys, hold
2: on. I know a bunch of you are about to fast forward because you're going to, you're just going to jump past the the dealers and the sponsors and all that. And I get it. I do the same thing, but hear me out for a second. Those sponsors are the reason we're able to put this podcast on and send it out to you at no cost to you. So not only are we going to mix up the format a little bit, but I'm going to ask you and take a second. I know you've got better things to do and it's blah, 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 sponsors, but go ahead and listen to the sponsors for us. It's, it's how we're able to, to do this show. And the next time you've got to buy something and eventually you're going to have to buy something, go ahead, hit up one of our sponsors, use, uh, use the discount codes we give. It lets the sponsors know that y'all are listening and that it's affecting their business, which encourages them to give us money, which encourages us to buy vodka and do this show for you. So it's, it's, a, it's a circle of life, mutually beneficial thing. You're going to buy stuff anyway, so, so buy from our sponsors, use our coupon codes, and give us a few minutes and uh, listen to the advertisements. And to make sure you do that, we're now mixing up the advertisements all through the show so you can't just skip through them. <laughs> this is your own fault. You did this to
0: you. Yeah. Uh,
2: so, but we can talk about dealers.
0: Yeah. You can find the finest kitchen cutlery at Old Town Cutlery. And you can get Dogwood Custom Knives and Cage Daily Knives there. And you can get, currently, get knives or Dogwood Custom Knives at the Knife Center and hopefully Cage Daily Knives soon. Be. And uh, Cook Station also sells Dogwood Custom Knives, and you can get uh, KH Daily Knives at Northside Cutlery. Say hi to our man, Kevin, down there.
2: And we're now going to get into shout outs and gear talk. Shout outs and gear talk brought to you by Phoenix Abrasives, the finest abrasives in the knife making industry. Use discount code KP10 for 10% off all of your orders.
0: Yeah, I just got a whole bunch of. Uh, my five inch random orbital sandpaper. They use the Rhinolette white line for the, I have like an eight hole five inch diameter, random orbital sander. That's a lot of numbers, dude, man, that thing, that thing works really good. What do you do with that? Uh, so do on my random orbit sand stuff. Oh, just randomly,
1: randomly. Yeah. Orbit so what I'm doing,
0: doing woodworking projects, but what I use it for knife baking for is when I buy the big sheets of G10 and stuff, it has that really shiny film, I use some 220 grit on that, and I just hit it real lightly so it gets a scratch pattern and gets that really shiny surface off the off the sheet before I start cutting it up with the table saw. Oh. And it is not a coincidence
2: that uh, Phoenix Abrasives is sponsoring this, part, this uh, part of the show because I had a freaking brilliant aha moment. Only for Kyle to tell me that, yeah, lots of people had had that idea and it wasn't new, but it's new to me. <laughs> Um, as I was cutting up sheets of sandpaper, really short version, which is unusual for me. I know I was cutting up a bunch of sandpaper, trying to find sources for some more sheets of sandpaper. And I was on the Phoenix abrasives site and realized that they cut all their own, like two by 72, that loop, they cut that so they could just not make a loop. So I gave them a call and it turns out they do this for a couple of other makers. They don't have it on the website yet. So if you call them, they'll do it. I'm hoping that a couple of us will call and it'll give them a little pressure and it'll go on the website, but they sell shop rolls and it is an whatever grit abrasive you need an inch and a half wide and 15 yards long. So rather than buying packs of sandpaper and then cutting them up into strips to hand sand, you just get a box that's a roll that's already an inch and a half wide. Um, price per square foot is less because they don't have to make sheet goods. And the backing is somewhere between paper and like a G-Flex belt. So it's a, a sturdier backing, but it's it's got a lot of flex. It doesn't, like when you bend it around a stick, it doesn't immediately get that crease in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've started with 80 grit, and as I run through my stock of other hand sanding grits, I'm just going to start replacing it with these shop rolls.
0: That works great on handle material too. When you got all your curves and swoops, you can kind of yep. do the shoe shine method, and it doesn't want to rip on you. Yeah, oh, I didn't even think. I mean,
2: yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Man, uh, we, we get Dan into the 21st century here.
2: Slowly but surely. I mean, I'm now onto this new fangled grinding thing that all the kids
0: are into. (laughs) I still need to get you doing a nine inch disc grinder for those kitchen knives.
2: Yeah, we've kicked it around. I'm absolutely I'm ready to commit maybe January, February, maybe February, March come up. Maybe we'll do a knife perspective north kind of gathering because I want to I want to do some file classes with you. I, I love your file technique and. Yeah, I'm ready to try to figure out this whole spinning disc of death.
0: Yeah. Just make sure you don't stick your hand in it. Yeah, see, I struggle with that. <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, what's your first shout-out here? Or I guess you did your first shout-out. Yeah, out to be, in the, uh, be in the shop roll.
2: Yeah. That uh, may or may not be my only shout-out for the day. Well, <laughs> I've got a couple more. You know what, I'm going to save it. All right. No, it's got to take pictures. It's awesome. I'm going to save it for the next show because y'all got to see pictures of this.
0: All righty. So my next shout out is uh, Brad Jansen. I shouted him out uh, many shows ago, but he uh, posted up a slip joint drilling fixture. I just bought one from him. Uh, He's B Jansen underscore MKE on Instagram. And it's uh, got a bigger plate with like two threaded holes. It's mainly for like doing slip joint handles. Uh, where you kind of fit everything up with the liners and then put the the bolster and handle material and stuff on. You kind of glue it on and then transfer the holes through. It has some like wing nut nuts on the backside so you can tighten it and then hold it in your drill press uh, vice and uh, drill it perfectly flat. And he surface grinds them and everything. It was a really cool idea and always love it when I see stuff like that and uh, he said he's going to send me a slip joint spring and handle, um. So, because folders is where the money is, baby. And he he said anytime I want to come up, I'm welcome. So, uh, gonna try to take him up on that and make it up to Milwaukee. That'll be a fun time. Yeah, and I yeah, uh,
2: this is one of those examples where yeah, you could make it yourself, but you're gonna spend four days making it. Or you could spend four days making knives and with a fraction of the day's work, buy a jig from somebody.
0: Yep. And on the post where he has it, he actually has a little hand-drawn sketch with all the dimensions and stuff on it if you wanted to make it yourself. It's not overly uh, overly complicated, but wanted uh, to support a fellow maker. so. Yeah, and
2: you'll take that drawing, get halfway through it, and realize it's a pain in the ass and you just want to buy it from somebody that's already done it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Cool stuff from him. Normally, we would do
2: Dan's rants at this point, but I want to bring our guest in for uh, for Dan's rants because I think he may uh, he may have some wise words. So I'm just going to slip a, sim- a similar rant. Yeah, you know, we seem to be like minded in our rants, so I'm I'm feeling like a, a fire and oil situation coming on, <laughs> and that's got nothing to do with the third fourth vodka I'd poured. I don't know. It's going to be tighten up. Get your kids out of the car. It's going to be one of those podcasts.
1: Fire and gasoline. (laughs) So um, a lot
2: of people know about our guest through Forged in Fire, and that's amazing. But I want to take a second and talk about a lot of what people don't know. People really don't know how much he has helped young upcoming makers with advice and support. Um, He helped us set up the South Carolina Custom Knife Makers Guild. Throwing his name behind that really helped us get momentum for those first couple of meetings and, and make it into a thing. And in some ways, he's doing maybe the bravest thing you can do in this industry, especially as an ABS master. And that is working to bridge the gap between Smiths and stock removal, which is a pretty significant thing. and part of what really impresses, impresses me about Jason Knight. How are you doing tonight, Jason?
1: I'm doing great, Dan. Thanks <laughs> for having me on. I, I assure you, our pleasure.
2: Um, I'm going to jump right into Dan's Rants with you. Um, I like to rant. And that's Dan's Rants, brought to you by Jans Jance Knife Making Supplies, for all of your knife making needs, be it handle materials or blade blanks. Go to Jance for everything you need in knife making. Oh yeah, and they got good pen stock too.
1: I like how you said that too.
2: Thank you. I've been practicing my, my 1950s voice.
1: Uh, <laughs> you gotta be able to fluctuate a little bit just like this.
2: <laughs> um, all right, sharpening gimmicks. Oh I've been on Instagram. I I, I saw like the the magnetic roll it thing and the uh, the knife block that automatically sharpens and there's some good sharpening methods out there and we can touch on those. If it looks easy and it's self sharpening
1: it. Yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> that's great. That's, that's, that's one of those things I've always seen. I, I walk by this, these guys, they'll be at the flea market and they're like, you got a knife there young fella? How about let me sharpen it for you. I bet it's not very sharp. I'm like, it's sharp. <laughs> let me see it. Let me feel the edge on it. I'm like, here, hold it. I'm like, well, damn, that's sharp. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I don't want you running it through that thing, so I made sure I sharpened it before I walked past you. You know.
2: Yeah, uh, uh, electric the the thing that sits on the counter that you cram your knife blade and drag it through. No, that's that's yeah. just a no.
1: Oh no, the, with the, the little miniature belt grinder. Yeah. Oh, I, you I, mean the one on the back on the can op the back of the can opener. So I grew up in the 70s and 80s, so they had to... Nee- oh, yeah. Yeah, you just run your knife through it. It's like a 26-grit stone back there. Just,
0: oh, man. They even had those canopers you'd mount to the underside of the the cabinets.
1: <laughs> yeah, or the, the one that's uh, the tungsten... The two two tungsten things that are on a 45-degree angle. Because that 45-degree angle, you know that's the best edge geometry you can get. And just peeling the old edge off, that works great.
2: Yeah, and and we've talked, I think last show, we talked a little bit about angle of micro bevel. It depends on the thickness of the blade, the use of the knife. Look, that one-size-fits-all just doesn't work. Yeah, boy. pretty much as a guide, if it's on Instagram or Facebook, you don't want it.
1: No. No, Uh, no. I'll tell you one of the coolest sharpening things I have seen, though. I was in Nicaragua in about 2010, and these all these young boys carry machetes and a stick, and they cut grass with them primarily, but everybody's got a machete. So they have an old brick, and they'd get a slurry on that brick, and they'd... I mean, it was really cool. They were sharpening it on a brick, and they had... Totally changed his geometry. A lot of them had their, um, their machetes look like really long buoy knives. They're really cool looking. But that's how they did it.
2: And that's along those lines, I'm a big fan of learning to freehand sharpen. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of hours to build that muscle memory. But once you can do it, you can sharpen anything on anything. Yeah. I have won bets sharpening knives on window glass, broken pieces of tile, a coffee mug, wow, um, if you don't have the time to devote to building up that muscle memory, there are a couple of guide systems that involve some sort of stone, a diamond, or whatever, and a guide that locks the angle in, and you just provide the motion
1: yeah. and, the only one I've ever seen that I really like is that uh, that wicked edge one you know they. Yeah. Ch- that's the only one I, I've seen that I like that makes sense and you can replicate it mm-hmm. without without a whole lot of, uh, you know, dexterity. You can just, you know how it does and then you do it.
2: The, there's a simple, a similar one out there that rather than being locked in vertically, it's locked in horizontally on the edge of a table. But it's the same concept. You, know, you set the yeah. angle and then you just provide the muscle. The downside is you have to carry that mechanism with you to sharpen. Yeah. But – it, if you don't, if you're not in a place in your life where you can devote a couple of hundred hours to building the muscle memory to, to hand sharpen those work.
1: I, I think one of the, one of the things, especially for us who are making culinary knives, kitchen knives of any type uh, are if I, I've made several videos on sharpening and I try to, I think I, I, I think they're both where I have them kind of glued to the table, which is, I can do it, but it ain't my favorite way to do it. But I've done my best at it. And then the funniest part is watching all the criticisms. Well, he's doing <laughs> it wrong because of da da, da, da da. I was like, yeah, thank cool. Like, I don't give a damn what your opinion is. I'm sorry. I really don't care because I already know. And I know that people just have to, they want to have their voice out there about it. But the one gimmick, the one, the, the silliest one I've seen is someone was trying to sell me a million grit stone. <laughs> and I was like, that looks like about an inch thick piece of glass that's been sandblasted. And the guy goes, No, 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 no. It's a million grit, sir. I assure you, it's one million grit. I'm like <laughs> I was like, okay, well what does it do? It it's like it doesn't feel like a million grit. It's like once you get your knife sharp, it just takes it up that ramp to that ultimate sharpness. It, I'm it like, takes it up to eleven. <laughs> yeah, it takes it up to eleven for two cuts. And then it's back to where it was supposed to be anyway. <laughs> all silliness. All silliness.
0: Once you do your paper towel roll chop or standing paper chop, which is
2: the defining measure of all sharpness, by the way. Is it? No.
1: Uh, I like a slick magazine. I just take a really shiny magazine. And if you get, like, you go to, you lay your knife about, I don't know, pretty like 25, 30 degrees and just, sh- and it'll grab in that and slice it off, then it's pretty good. I used but. to
2: have a really bad case of a knife maker's mange. So my, my forearms would be varying degrees of stubble because you know, at the, at the end of the week when I'm sharpening everything, razor's edge is kind of the standard. So I, I check it on my forearm. And partially because Beth is like, look, that's really annoying. Like we're in bed and you lay your arm across me and it's just varying degrees of stubble and I'm not having it. <laughs> what I have come to find is... In those regions of the country where they still have telephone books, not as thick as they used to be, but once a year when they come out, I go around to my neighbors and they all give me, I've got a lifetime supply, but it's really thin, almost tissue paper. Yeah. And I have found if it'll slice that page, it'll shave. And the advantage to using paper is as you draw the edge along the paper, if there's any little imperfection on the edge, you'll feel I'll it grab catch. Grab yeah. Where if you're shaving your arm, you won't feel that. So I yeah. I have been a full convert to a slicing either heavy tissue paper or thin uh, telephone book, newsprint type thickness paper The I've become a convert to that as a an edge test.
1: Yeah, I think those are good edge tests. Those are a logical, reasonable edge test, primarily because you can see if there's any issue in the edge and i i totally agree with that that's a good one to to test especially if you're sharpening multiples of knives you know that's a that's a tricky one and i go back and forth whether i want to strop the edge some or not like when i'm doing hollow ground stuff that i have a secondary bevel on i will set up a primary and then i'll go back with the, that leather strop wheel and just i'll take the burr off with it and that's it so once the burr is gone then i'm done and it's like a razor blade at that point it's plenty durable edge, but there's all these places where I think we talked about the that plateau of sharpness, and that you could hit that million grit it takes 20 more minutes to get and it's like one, two, three cuts now you're back on that plateau so yeah there's the there's the old school standard very simple sharpest sharp, and um, it has to do with the the edge geometry and the type of edge and you can you can make an axe razor blade sharp if you want to it just takes some time. And the and technique it'll be that is sharp for one chop. Yeah, and and if you and if you are an enthusiast of custom knives, especially kitchen knives, you'll learn how to sharpen your knives because you will not want someone touching your knife. You won't want it. It becomes so personalized. and such a part of your, you know, your enjoyment of cooking. You don't want anybody touching it.
0: Yeah. What one quick thing back to uh, your phone, your telephone books. If you don't have telephone books. Uh, sign up for or buy one thing from uline you will have yeah. a, 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 a like yeah. paper to test with that's like an inch and a half thick like every quarter sent to your house <laughs> or uh mcmaster car and msc yeah. uh sign up for them they'll send you a book and We're you'll have wondering you one happened for to do our time. profits uh guys <laughs>
1: uh, i don't know we <laughs> yeah. sent everybody in america a book <laughs>
2: Uline must be doing great because they've got that like that heavy, shiny paper, like even on the inside. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah, It's gotten to be a
2: a joke in our household because I've bought stuff as Dan and I've bought hmm. stuff as Dogwood. So the amount of Uline um,
0: doubles up. Yeah. Yeah. You can also use it to mix epoxy. That's a great thing. It's nice, heavy surface. It won't move around. Then when it's dry, you just rip the top paper off and throw it in the trash can. So.
2: Um, I'll also use them when I'm finishing handles, uh, well, or when I've got a finished blade before I set it down on the my bench. I have the Uline calendar or catalog right there, and I'll tear a page off and set it down, and then set the knife on that. Okay. Because my bench is not the cleanest thing in the world, and I just put a two thousand grit polish on that thing. So I'll and it's always a fresh page. So I'll just tear off a page, set it down, and I can put a couple of knives on top of it.
0: You need to start putting electrical tape after you hand sand. Um, Where? Depending on where I am. On the bevel.
2: Yeah, but like if I'm sharpening, uh, if I'm sharpening six knives at a time, you know, they're unmasked, and I don't want to set them directly down on my bench, so I'll Uh, put paper down.
0: All right. I'll I'll give you a pass on that. Uh, Thank (laughs) you. I worked hard for that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, the sharpening gimmicks, uh, there's a lot of them. The carbide pull-through sharpeners, I did, or tell Jason, I did find one good use for that. So uh, when I cut the 9 by 11 inch paper from my 9 inch disc sander, uh, I use a razor blade and that cutting the abrasive, it wears the the razor out really quick. So that pull-through sharpener uh. gets that razor blade back enough to cut the sandpaper 15 or 20 more times so I'm not going through as many razor blades.
1: No, oh, I use a not sharpened knife and I just push it off and it kind of, I pinch it. It's like I'm pinching the knife between the disc, but okay. every time I use a sharp thing, I dig into the disc, but maybe it's just my skill in doing it. You've developed a technique technique for cutting through the, the sandpaper on the disc
0: on the the sandpaper that I use. So I use the nine by 11 inch paper when I'm like 400 and 600 grit. And uh, I have like a 16th inch piece of rubber in between that. Oh, and the metal. that makes sense. Like I, can't, I yeah. can't quite get the, the sheer effect.
1: Yeah, that makes sense to use that with the rubber. I'm usually using it just hardback, but I do like the way that finishes stuff. That is a really nice yep. finish.
2: Yeah. Uh, and I am going to touch just really briefly with the sharpening stuff. Some of it has to do with the steel. Ethan put me in my place the last time he was here he had some 1095 and i was sharpening it like it was s35vn and yeah you know, i start going up to the 2000 grit hone and he's you know what the hell are you doing i'm sharpening a knife we've pretty much established i know how to do this he's like eh, yeah that's not that's not good for 1095 like, well, no no and sure enough i sharpened it the same way i did my s35vn and it didn't cut as well Dropped it back down to like a 600 or 1,000 grit stone. The, it has, the short version, it has to do with some of the carbide structures and that sort of thing. Like that, that 1095, I think they use the 1095 Uh, see. uh I
0: think you're the Becker head.
2: Yeah, I know. And this is a little (laughs) embarrassing. It's a 1095, but I swear, I think it's got a little bit of vanadium and maybe chrome in it, but dropping back down to a rougher grit on the stone, it actually cut better, which was a little bit of lesson for me. So nowadays it gets, it gets a little complicated. It's, it's structure of the steel, the angle of the steel, how it's going to be used.
1: I mean, it's voodoo. Just It is. I think you said it properly. It is Sharpening is voodoo.
2: So just pay your reputable knife maker whatever yeah. he asks to sharpen your knives for you. And we're all going to be <laughs> happier that way.
1: Yeah, yeah. I always see the look on people's face. They think it's a magic trick when you do it. I'll, I'll tell you one thing I've never been able to sharpen is those ceramic knives. Remember somebody asked that. that yeah. You know we did? I was like. Why bother? You just throw them away and get another one. I mean, <laughs> it <yeah>. was $3. <laughs> yeah, stupid. I I have had people bring me knives to sharpen them. Sometimes I'll sharpen them, and sometimes I'm just like, not sharpening that, not sharpening that. They're like, why? Why wouldn't you sharpen those? I said, because I charge 10 bucks a piece to sharpen, and those things are worth about 2 bucks a piece, and I'm not sharpening them. It's not going to happen.
2: I do $3 an inch, $10 minimum, and then if it's excessively dull or chips or tips there's an additional fee to fix that
1: yeah this is only um belt sharpening I don't I don't do I don't do any um really high-end sharpened form I but because I you'd be busy a lot I know you'd be busy a lot I just I'll tune them up with a grinder and you know they'll be like wow but that's as far as I go <laughs> now if it's mine of course I told you what I'd Dude, if somebody says i wash it in the dishwasher and it really bumped it up and i'm like cool you're not getting it back that's that's yeah. just it <laughs> well how about money no you're not getting your money back either i'm keeping the knife <laughs> i'm keeping your money get out of my life go away and i've, I've it done back that i'll fix it yeah send it back <laughs> i'll fix it all right
2: yeah if you if you put one of my <laughs> knives in the, the dishwasher you've proved that you don't deserve to own one of my knives is that yep. is that pretty much what we're working with yeah true
0: I sat. I sat your knife in the dishwasher, and, and my took a soul of died it. just a little bit. <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> I said. I said this is how you clean the do- those dogwood knives, and post a picture of it on my Instagram. And Dan goes, "That's a good way
2: to get killed." <laughs> good night. You want to die because that's a good way to get
0: killed.
2: <laughs> All right, we're going to wrap up Dan's rants, but I got one more because I'm just going to pile in here, and it's been showing up on Instagram a lot these Instagram knives. Now I'm not talking about some maker that makes a knife. Finger hole in them. <laughs> Thank you.
1: You know, the ones I'm talking about. Yeah. They have a <laughs> hole for your finger to go in. Or
2: there's right now there's a chef's knife with a, a false edge and it's a quarter inch thick. Yeah. I'm not talking about a maker that makes a knife that is different than your design principles. You'll know what I'm talking about. The absolute knives with some slick advertising around it. It'll show up in your feed 10 or 15 different times. Call those people yeah. out because they are burning people that could have been your clients. People yeah. that would have, they think they're buying a high-end knife and they get this piece of crap and then they're done. They don't see the reason in buying good quality knives. These guys are damaging your business, my business. Yeah. Call them out, flood their comments. Every time they post, they should flinch when a horde of angry, competent knife makers start tearing their crap apart. And they'll pull the post down and repost it. And when they do, jump back on it. No. Again, I want to be clear don't go after your brother knife makers that eh, maybe you don't agree with his philosophy. Go after these cheap ass knives. How do you really feel, Dan? <laughs> I,
1: you
2: know what? I'm sorry, I, I, I got a little worked up. What did you call him? <laughs> we, we, we went from a conversation to a monologue. I want to apologize. Yeah.
0: Caught you monologuing again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also, also, if you ever see uh, like Jason has really uh, distinct knife patterns and stuff. If you ever see uh your buddy's knives and stuff on somebody trying to repost them and say that they're their their work yeah. uh call them out to one of the good friends of the show Todd Hunt there was a guy that added me and there was a M18 there were a couple pictures of M18s on his profile and he didn't he didn't make the M18 Todd did so uh it even you could even read stamped TM Hunt on the side of it so they didn't even photoshop it at all so trying to claim that they could they could make it uh, just as quality is what his term was call those people out to best of the Pakistani knives yeah report report them also on
2: Instagram uh, we've got the South Carolina Custom Knife Makers Guild uh, November 19th in Greenville South Carolina that's going to be at Dan's
0: shop check out the Facebook post for the address right Yep. Uh, Craig
2: will uh Craig won't be able to uh to cook. He is doing a wedding that weekend, but Wow. Hudson and uh Chef Ralph will be there providing
0: delicious vittles. I need to meet Chef Ralph sometime. I I follow him on Instagram. He's a looks like he's making some really delicious stuff. He is a f-
2: absolutely phenomenal human being. I mean, you you will not hear me say this very often, but he is good people. Um Okay. Phenomenal guy. You hear the accent and you don't expect him to be as Carolina as he is, but he is. um,
1: Oh, is that the guy who lives in Bulgaria part of the year or? or No, no, that's, uh,
2: uh, I can't even pronounce his name. Um, No. So I guess it was the second seating at the show we did. Uh, He was the little Italian guy that was sitting at the corner. Mm. Um built like a brick mm-hmm. um absolutely phenomenal human being uh and he runs yeah it
1: seems
2: cool he runs the entire culinary side for a local college. he feeds sixteen hundred people a day, oh wow, um, but he does things like cooks uh one time he did an argentine style entire cow, wow, so he cool. took an entire steer and cooked it. Uh, for lunch for these kids very cool um yeah he for uh for on the fire cooking and outdoor cooking that's that's his passion and it is amazing to go to the woods with him sorry i got carried away again it was food yeah
0: Yeah, i love food
2: i love
1: food too yeah (laughs) yeah very cool
0: so next next one for guild meetings, the Midwest Knife Makers Guilds coming up really quick, uh, October twenty second, and it's going to be in Iowa, Des Moines, uh, at Carlin's Shop. These uh, Eastern Roadside Creations and Tinker Bear IX on uh, Instagram. So uh, if you can make it out there, that's a good time. I met Carlin at the Midwest Knife Makers Guild in up in Mankato. Really knows what he's doing up there. He said he was going to do a speed knife grinding technique that he learned from one of the the ABS guys. Those with. Those guys don't grind. Apparently, that guy could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: uh,
0: I, mean, you, I really just some, to know who this is. Anyways, I, I can I can look or I can talk to him and figure it out. But yeah, ch- or. That should be definitely a good time. I don't think there's any cost to this one, so just get there. If you go to the Midwest Knife Makers Guild Instagram account, there should be the post there soon. They just got done with the Twin Cities Knife Show up in... One of those other cold places, the Arctic. uh, Bloomington, Minnesota. Minnesota, the frozen north. Uh, This past weekend, so... Yeah, I heard there was a really good show up there. So uh, thank you, everybody that went, and all the knife makers that were there. Uh, love seeing all the pictures and stuff from everybody getting together. I'm definitely going to try to make it next year. All right, we're going to get into early years and family, and this is brought to you by
2: Atlas Handle Materials. Atlas Handle Materials for the finest handle materials. And actually, I'm going to go ahead and give a double plug. Uh, my buddy Goran down in the Amazon – I always try to bring him handle materials when I come down because shipping to try and get stuff down to where he is, he's basically on an island and it gets priced out. He has phenomenal woods, but when he tries to ship it anywhere else in the world, because the differences in humidity, there's expansion, there's contraction. It's a mess. We've taken him stabilized woods. He still has problems. So I loaded up a bunch of Crazy Fiber Jumanji, I, I keep saying it wrong. It's not Jumanji, Juma, it, Juma. There we go, uh, Juma.
0: <laughs> he's 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 actually Juma making this mistake. Knife. Like it's not yeah. on purpose, <laughs> um, because it
2: is so stable that I can take it from South Carolina to the Amazon River Basin, right along the equator. He can work it and ship it back out, which he just did one recently. And it's stable enough that it looks as good in his shop as it did when it got shipped out. So apart from, we all know I drank the Kool-Aid on a bunch of their stuff. I, I love the way it finishes out, the snake skin, that kind of stuff. But I didn't appreciate how stable it was until I appreciated moving it to different zones. And that's all I got to say about that for now very cool
0: yeah uh, dan and natasha are great great people um definitely check them out they have uh all sorts of handle material coming in and out of there all the time so definitely give them a call
2: oh and the um the faux ivory that they do that looks stunning is fda approved for kitchen use yeah um i got a certificate and everything
0: cool stuff <laughs> oh I didn't. I don't have a certificate.
2: Uh, I printed it off a website.
1: I have one. <laughs> I have a certificate too. Says I do what I want.
0: Speaking of doing what you want, <laughs> <laughs> that's, a per- that's a permit. That's a permit. Ron Swanson.
1: Where style. did you grow up, Jason? Uh, I grew up in the swamps of South Carolina, down <clears throat> near Charleston, in a town called Harleyville, where I lived until I was forty-two years old, taking out about a year of that time to live in new york city which
2: was uh we'll get back to that uh,
1: yeah but yeah i grew up down there and uh so one of the things about growing in a swamp i was always kind of macheting i'd use a machete and a stick or even two machetes or machete and a hatchet um one of my early jobs was i worked for the national autobahn society and i would clear boundary lines so i'd get to go and clear a line, and I'd paint the I'd paint the marker on the trees like here's where the boundary line is for Audubon, and I used the machete a lot, and I developed one that my friend Mike called it the Jedi swamp weapon. So I would take them and regrind them and stuff. And this is after I had been making knives for a, a while, stock removal back in those days only. I'd have a hatchet, the
2: Lord's way of making knives.
1: <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so growing up down there, I think one of the questions was what my first knife was and Uh, that um, was going to
2: be the follow-up question but um, you can i'll wait on the head
1: oh yeah
2: yeah this is organic you just flow dude
1: so to put my finger on it i would grab a whole any knife that came my way i was going to acquire it and i remember my my grandma her name was hazel we called her Gio. she lived up in New, new jersey and she had a it was like a little box that was at her kitchen table, and there was a, it was like a Barlow knife and a, some kind of pin knife and a Swiss Army knife, and I think the first one was really a Swiss Army knife, but uh, the first knife I remember cutting the mess out of my finger with was that Barlow <laughs> knife. It, it was a slip joint; it closed on my finger. Yep. I remember wearing a glove all day because. I didn't want to get in trouble. And my mom was like, why are you wearing that glove? I said, oh, it's a special space power glove. You know, I'm I <laughs> Yeah. Uh, nobody was doing what I was doing. I did what I wanted to. I did my own weird ass thing. But I remember wearing that glove and I think I kept it on there for probably three days until my finger keeled up. Strangely, it didn't get infected. Um, but like first fixed blade might have been a, a buck. Back then, they made one called the General. It was a knife my dad had. It was cool. It was, I don't know what I did with it. I, I chopped down bushes and stuff. But I might have been six or seven at the time.
2: Yeah, I had a Barlow. My first knife was a Barlow, and it laid me open pretty much to the bone. Hmm? Now, that's because my dad was sadistic and had stropped that thing to, like, a one million grit edge. <laughs> knowing what was going to happen, it was like, oh, always cut away from yourself. Three, two, one. Oh, bloody mess. How are you doing?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah, I cut myself lots and lots of times. It's a strange thing in the shop now. I'm like, I didn't even cut myself lately. You know, I pay a, a, attention more. <laughs> I pay attention better not more. On wood.
2: Yeah. I kind of <laughs> stole it from a buddy of mine that's a dog <laughs> trainer, but he says, you know, if you work with dogs, you're going to get bit. I yeah. say, if you work with knives, eventually you're going to get, get cut.
1: Uh, they had buckets and buckets and buckets of blood. I have damn near bled out before I was doing this. You'll make more. <laughs> yeah, make more blood. Yeah. So
2: so uh, how did you meet your wife and where does that fall on the Dan Kyle scale? And for those that are new listeners, Dan picked up his wife at her grandmother's wake. Kyle met his wife on an online dating service.
1: Wow. Huh. Well, I was. <laughs> there's this town called Dorchester. It was the county seat of Dorchester County Ooh. at one time. But now it's Hold nothing. It's kind of, a, kind of a little wasteland in South Carolina at this point. And I, I'm not. First time I met my wife was in, that was my son. was in high school. It's a good story because
2: he's checking behind him.
1: Yeah, I got a curtain here. So we were in high school. I think I was 13 or 14 and she was a senior. But this was in 1987 and she was the original goth chick. Like she had a mohawk and she had black fingernails and black lips and leather pants. And she had like two, machine like spent m60 cartridges which is 308 if you don't know 762 by 51 and uh it was like wrapped around her I'm like who is this i'm afraid i was afraid of her so (laughs) my friend archie knew her and it's like i was sitting in home at class i put a bunch of safety pins through my arm like this i just put them through and reattached i might have had 30 of them on there and i thought that'd impress her i'm like what do you think about that like, better get those out. I was going to get infected. I was like, Oh shit. I didn't think about that part. <laughs> and then I didn't see her again until after high school. She had a little, um, like a convenience store. Her dad and her mom used to have it as a grocery store. She just set it up as a convenience store and she'd, we were both into art. And I went in there with a, a former friend of mine and, uh, He's like, oh, yeah, I remember Shelly. I'm like, yes, I remember Shelly. And I, was, I was, like, instantly stupid. I was just totally stupid. She was painting the countertop like it's like a dark red-brown, and I just put my elbow in, like, hi, what are you doing? She's like, well, I'm painting the countertop, you just put your elbow in. I'm like, oh, yeah. But I was a savage back in those days. I had long hair, and I I would wear shoes and shorts, and, I mean, the same dad gum pair until mm-hmm. I – that was all I had, but it was kind of interesting, and then we just got to be friends, and it got it got more and more interesting. It took like six months for me to say, can I hold your hand? Can we can we date? And she's like, oh, well, I'm engaged to be married. I'm like, oh, I have to fix that. So, <laughs> so I killed her boyfriend, and then no, I didn't do that. <laughs>
2: you know, accidents happen. I'm just
1: saying. just <laughs> uh, He was a super nice guy. They didn't work out. And uh, then we, we started dating and it got serious and uh, I didn't have a job or anything. I was carving and doing, like I was doing sculpture and stuff. I, I did mostly wood carving back in those days. I made a lot of war clubs and um, a lot of uh, more uh, native inspired art was kind of my thing. And um,
0: so what, what year is this? Or where,
1: how old were you? This was in 90, I was 19. 19, okay. Um, when we met, so this was in 90, I
0: mean, this, 1991.
1: This feels,
2: this feels like a really wholesome love story, but we're talking about a badass chick with a mohawk and like yeah. linked M60 ammo around her. So hey, yeah. I, I think I'm going to claim this one for Team Dan.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> she
0: Maybe. was a badass, Yeah. <laughs> If, J- if Jason had a little more uh, more gumption or we could have probably
1: been in some I was a kid, but I had had some girlfriends that I just like was real standoff. With, so I wasn't in no hurry to, to make this, you know, a, a big deal. I was just like, I'm done. You know, I was just kind of being the sage um, wood sculptor artist poet, <laughs> real shitty, real shitty poet, mind you. But uh, Anyway, I got serious. Roses are (laughs) red. But I made her a ring. I I made her an engagement ring out of a stainless steel uh, nut. I was working at a cement plant. I said, hey, will you? And I put it, I froze it in a block of ice, and I gave her to her in the summertime. It melted. I said, will you marry me? She's like, I will, but you have to get a job first. I'm like, okay. (laughs) So, So... so they got no, I don't
2: appreciate your nut, but yeah, yeah we need some ice. We got married like <laughs> the next
1: spring, and uh, we've been together for 28 years 20 yep twenty eight years
2: outstanding
0: yep. wow so so that was uh you got married before you went to oh, New yeah. York huh. you mentioned
1: New York was. that came way later. Fours
0: and fire era okay, so why'd you why'd you move to New York? If you were hey, we're gonna get we're gonna get to I'll, that. I'll tell you. Yeah, all
2: right. Have you not read the show notes? That's like two sections below. I I did read the show notes. There's You got to read between the lines, dude.
0: <laughs> I'm the
2: one that's got to explain
0: nuance to you. All right, all right. So you you got married, and then uh, then what happened?
1: Uh, then I was working as a I was working as a sculptor. I was a product designer. I, so my history of design goes way back. I designed stuff for a company called Coco Mat. They did all these coconut, coconut fiber mats. You've seen them. Okay. They made them at Co- Coco Mat in St. George, and I did a lot of design stuff for them. And then I got a job at a company that made uh, gift wares and, like, just cool stuff. There were little castles and things. It was called Hopkins Shop. And so they saw my art, and they hired me. I think I might have made nine bucks an hour back then. Oh, um, big money! Which, which was money at the time, you know. Uh, and my friend, were, my friends were in the army, Dan, which is probably the same time you were in. And I was like, "Damn, they work a whole month and they're only getting twelve hundred bucks. That's stupid." <laughs> yeah.
2: Twelve hundred bucks—that was like E three, E four pay.
1: <laughs> they were like, "This is funny." So um, I, I did that, and we, we moved to um west ashley which is really close to downtown Ooh. charleston and we were going to close on a house that was right off the ashley river i think it was 60 grand and then i go into work the day we were going to close and um guy goes well i got some bad news for you and some good news and i was like what's that like we're gonna have to lay everybody off because we're going out of business but the good news is we'll give you a really good uh resume you know and i was like Whatever, <laughs> so we didn't. End you keep up. using <laughs> that
2: word "good," but I don't think it means
0: what you. It think doesn't it mean
1: <laughs> what you think it means. <laughs> yeah, like I'm not a good employee. I'm either. I'm gonna. I want to take a hold of the company and do what I want to with it. So that's
2: you want to love it and
0: pad. Yeah, it. I want to
1: make it into something bigger, and that's like a natural thing, I guess. But so we moved to. Back to Dorchester, where her mom and dad lived, when we rented a little house. I worked at Lowe's and I made furniture out of like, you ever seen that rustic furniture made out of sticks and willow yeah. and stuff? So I did yeah. that and I'd make a mm-hmm. knife every now and then, but I didn't really know what I was doing. Okay. I really just didn't. I would cut them out of saw blades and grind them. And I had now going back into the 80s, I missed this part. I worked with a guy named Walter Brend in his shop. I quit saying that because one time he told me he would sue me for saying that. So I don't give a damn anymore. <laughs> but I worked in Walter Bren shop and I'd cut blades out and um, I'd drill holes in them and stuff. And my dad bought me a grinder back in those days. It was a Bader BM2 and had, everything was round. Damn. So it was really difficult to fit stuff up. So I had this grinder. I left this part out. I'm going to go back on it, okay? And so I ground knives. And every time I grind one at Walter's shop, he go, that's no good. That's no good. That's garbage. That's trash. Um, and like, even before I met Shelley, I had been making knives, not, not awesome ones or anything, but I was trying. And back in those days, it was a lot more difficult to get information about making knives. The one guy who was the legend mm. was George Heron. And mm-hmm. I try not to get choked up about talking about him because you said something about speed grinding. I'll bet you no one you've ever met can grind a fa- knife faster than George Heron could dr- grind a knife. It was incredible, but we're talking about the difference between somebody who was. This was his. He was making knives. Boom, 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 and they were beautiful. They were kind of their designs were, as far as hunting knives go, perfect. I haven't seen a better one. I, I mean, it's just the way it is. But I. It wasn't
2: the McKissick music. The McKissick Museum had a um, a, a show about South Carolina knife makers. Yeah. And they must have must have had a hundred of his knives then. Yeah. And it was phenomenal to go through and watch the progression. Mm-hmm.
1: I was in yeah, that everybody. Well, I knows. had one back a long time ago. I was I was in that museum up that's the one in Columbia, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was in that also. Uh they had video of me and him okay. doing stuff. Uh but that was back in the early like two thousand two or three. So anyway, I, I just I got discouraged because I was working with Walter and he wasn't a great teacher. He's a great knife maker. There's no doubt. He's a wonderful knife maker and he's an older guy now. So he's a lot nicer than he used to be. Um, So I kind of quit and I started carving. That's how I learned to carve. Okay. So that's the segue into that. I taught myself to carve wood because I'd carve wooden knives. I'm like, Oh, well I can carve wood. So I just carved. I get a picture of someone, their face, the side view. I usually do a lot of, like historic Indian images. If I could, I would try to carve those and I'd do them in pine knots and carve whales and dolphins and sharks and all that. And I was good at it, but it didn't make any, it was just no money. Um, So fast forward a little bit. I'll, I'll try to speed this up because I know we only have a limited amount of time. I know you only want to do this podcast for six or seven more hours. So I'll just speed it up a little
2: bit. I, I'm not editing this, man. You can take all the time you want.
1: So when... When yeah. uh, Shelley got pr- pregnant with Tristan, when I was working at Lowe's, and um, our, yeah, I think it was we'd been married about three years or so, and I still make stuff. And the pressure was on. The pressure was on. And uh, I had not really made any knives for a while, and um, I met I met some guys from the used to be the South the SCAC, you know, the South Carolina yeah. Knife Makers Association. That was when George was still alive, and he was. Really encouraging. I'd bought knives from him. I'd save up my money and I'd buy a knife from him every year at the Wildlife Expo. That was a trick to get one and a treat to get one too. But he was like, Hey, you know you should I showed him one I mean he goes, you know that you should make knives the way you want to make, you know, do this, but make what you want to make. So I got back into grinding knives and we used ATS thirty four and I'd make mostly hunters. And I would mirror polish them, so I, you know, I'd go all the way up to eight hundred, and then I'd get a cork belt, and I'd start polishing. I'd buff them, and they looked like—I mean, they looked like a mirror. They were perfect. I didn't think mine were perfect.
0: And this is still on the bader two that your dad got you. Yeah. Okay. It
1: was still on the bader two. He actually—he played pool, so he won the money to buy it in a pool game. Yeah. It's a big story, but I'm trying to fast forward it. So I always watch out for the man. Oh, go ahead. Always watch out
2: for the man with the two-piece, custom-made cool, pu- pool cue.
1: Yes, that's right. <laughs> and um, Tristan was—he was two, I think. But there were other makers, and I was looking at their knives, and I'm like, these guys are terrible, you know. And uh, so I start doing mine, and I was pretty happy with them, and they, they were professional quality. Like I would say, the first professional quality knives I made. And I'd made a bunch of them, but I didn't think they looked professional. It was probably 95 or 96. Before then, I made a lot of rustic stuff out of uh, saw blades. You know, I just do whatever I did. I didn't know how to heat treat them, so I would I would try to cut them in a way. I, I'd, I'd cut them with a torch, and then I'd grind all that stuff off, you know, and then I'd, have, I'd get to back to hard steel. I mean, the file would slide off of them, so I thought it was plenty hard enough. And um, it just kept to build. I would, I would work a job. I would do some sculpture, and I would, it just didn't go anywhere. I had a bunch of different jobs. I worked at a cabinet shop. I worked at the hardware store, and I just felt like a loser. I mean, I really it was like I, I had the skills to make stuff. I just didn't have any direction. And uh, I was working at a tire shop called Gerald's Tires. And if you're ever down in South Carolina, it's wonderful. I still love that I worked there. It was a beautiful thing. It was just dirty tire work. We, but tires are important. You know, you have them on your car, right? You got them. And uh, if you have good ones on there, mm-hmm. then you're safe. And if you have crappy ones, you'll die, you know? But kind of.
2: Yeah, the, the stopping and the steering and the, the being in control.
1: So I like that because it had a, a meaning. It was meaningful. It was purposeful. And people liked us, like we would wear our uniform. We'd go, I don't, I never bottom lunch i mean people would buy us lunch people would that's we had a great reputation for the customer service was amazing but the hours of operation i would work sometimes six days a week and i'd be there before dark and uh and i'd stay till seven or on sundays and we didn't work on sunday um we'd get off on wednesday at four or five yeah and then saturday was at four but we'd help anybody, you know, they come in and have a flat tire with me. So I, I did that, and I was out there in the rain changing tires one time. And I, we had like a little, like, we had a very elite crew. We all only wore shorts all year round, no matter <laughs> what temperature it was. We'd only wear shorts. And the funny thing is, is they were like booty shorts, kind of they were like, I mean, our asses were kind of hanging out of them. They're you know, the, the, yeah, you know, the, the 80s Magnum PI shorts, the 80s Magnum PI. Very close to ranger panties, if you know, you know what those <laughs> are. But, they, you know, they were just whatever. And then my grandma was like. Hey, I'm not
2: judging. You got to make yeah. money how you make money, man.
1: <laughs> I had a lot of ass grabbing having to me back in that day. But my grandma was like, uh, do you want to do this forever? They're like, no. She's like, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to make knives. This was about 2000. Yes, it's 2000. And it was probably uh, maybe November 2000. And so I signed up to take a class at the at the ABS school that which is in Arkansas. Now I'd signed up for this class one time in '97, and I just couldn't get there. I it couldn't work it out. That was the year Tristan was born, and I think that's the reason I couldn't go because it was it was in the spring and he was born in the spring, so I I didn't go because he was born at that very time. So I went to the school. I told the guys at work, I was like, "I'm going to this goes two weeks." He's like, "Cool." The, the boss was awesome, you know, and um, I met some other a, a guy named Jim Rodeball, who's a good friend of mine. And I mean, we forged blades, and I was like, I draw a knife, and I'd forge that exact knife. So I was like, "Damn, this is easy." I mean, this is like my thing, you know. So and I already knew how to grind. So when we went to grinding, I just get on the grinder and just I just grind it. That wasn't that hard. Grinding was easy. I'd already thought about grinding like carving wood yeah so it was very easy to me for me to grind
2: it's Sculpture sculpture it's sculpture
1: yeah the part i didn't know about was the heat tree that was the mysterious magical thing and i was like oh, i can't wait till we do this heat tree this is gonna be so crazy and um and we, we heat trees in the wood torch <laughs> and i was like what It's like it was so simple but then i understood like you know he explained He's like, so what we're doing is we're normalizing the steel. We're bringing up to this temperature, and we check it with a magnet. And we did that three, three times. And then we bring it up with the thing, and we quench it in some kind of oil. I don't even know what it was, but there was a. We quench only half of it because that was the old way. Jay Hendrickson was a teacher. The edge, the edge quench differential. Yeah, I made forty-three knives. When I was there, I forged them all out in two weeks, and I ground probably 10 of them. And then I made that one test knife, which is the – you uh, you cut the rope. You cut a 2 by 4 twice. You shave hair, and you bend it 90 degrees. Uh, after the 2 by 4 still has to shave hair. And I was like, man, my heat treat was good. And I, I took that information. I went home. I added on – I had a wood carving studio still in Harleyville, but I added on another um, – 10 foot kind of awning to the side. And um, my grandma funded me for a year. She gave me enough money to, so me and my wife and my son, we could live on a year. I mean, she didn't give it to me all at one time, but she told me basically, she's like, I'm going to take care of all this for you. So I'm going to back you for however long it takes to get the ball rolling. So this was in 2001. Cause I went, I decided I was going to do it in, in uh, 2000 and 2001 February. I went to school. <laughs> I never went back to work again. Ever did. Never went back. I um I started making knives and finishing those knives. I went to I had friends at church. I went to church. I had five knives and they were all what I thought professional quality. I sold them. Um, I think the least expensive one was like seventy five bucks, and the most might have been two hundred bucks. After that first batch, I started to go back to my art kind of heritage. And I would sketch out my knives. I'd blueprint my knives. And I developed a style instantly. I just liked like 57 Chevys. And this, you see me wear this fish hook. It's a, it's a, it's the hook of life. And I like those things, the Maori style stuff. You know, I like those curves. So I put that into my knives. And um, I, I got a job. Oh, this is hard to talk about, but I need a minute. I was making knives. I went to Blade Show in Atlanta, and I sold – I had 18 knives. I sold all the knives on Friday with a whole bunch. I was in the midst of a bunch of
2: – good Friday.
1: Master Bladesmiths and, and Journeyman Smiths, and all these Master Smiths were coming over, like Wade Colter. He was like, eh, I just want you to know we're going to have you killed. <laughs> so watch out. It'll probably happen on Saturday. So be careful. And I was like – Wade was like a, my hero. You know, I'm like, I'm going to be killed? I was, I'm like 27. I was like, maybe they're going to kill me, but they didn't. You know, they liked what I was doing, and I won an award for best new maker. And I went to another show, and then there was a job opening at a place called Middleton Place. Am I going too far? No, you, you're good. Okay, I'm assuming this nope. heads into Middleton. 9? Yeah, no, 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 no. Later, oh. that's the way later. So there's a, okay. it's called Middleton Place. It's the oldest rice plan. It's the oldest landscape gardens in america it's the first place carolina gold was grown um and you've seen it in a lot of movies
2: which is a phenomenal rice by the way
1: it is yeah first place it was grown um and then regrown when i was there actually it's kind of cool but it uh it's where you see a lot like the patriot a lot of scenes are filmed there because it's old and historic and i was working in a coal forge I taught myself how to make charcoal because that coal was garbage. And uh, my friend Billy Ridgel showed me how to forage weld. Oh, uh, He was a farrier. He's still around. He's super cool. He showed me how to forage weld. So I started doing forge welding and stuff because Damascus was like, oh, that's crazy. No, that's super hard to make. And then I, I was there for about two years, and I quit because I got too busy. And I I'd, I'd won several awards. My work was in demand. I had a distinct definitive style in 2002 i was influencing other makers style and so i was like i'm just gonna do this full time so and i mean when i was there i was foraging and i was taking them home and grinding so i was full time anyway i just had this cool side gig at the rice plantation and um also there's a magazine called sporting classics dan is that still around it still is it's in south carolina it's a it's a hunting magazine it's very beautiful hunting magazine
2: yeah, a lot of bird hunting, as I yeah, remember, bird and like
1: Africa and stuff. So, I I got a job making knives for them. Cool. They wanted 150 knives, and I made all 150 of those knives in a couple months, and they're all the same, all the same, same knife, same knife, same knife. Oh, I had that's so carbon kidding. steel blade, bronze guard, and a bacot bacot handle, and a guy named um, oh boy, Owen. Can't remember Owen's last name. He's a great knife maker. He lives up here in Tennessee somewhere. But he made all the sheaths, and I bought a Mercedes Benz. <laughs> As one does. It was an old one. It was a piece of crap. But nice. so that really but, got me. But you were driving busy. a Mercedes Benz. Yeah, it was two thousand. It was a nineteen ninety four five hundred SEL. Oh. Yeah. But it was great. It was a great time. It was a great learning experience and. Even back now, I was trying to develop things and under, understand knife making in ways that people would tell me something and I don't believe it. You know, I'd be like, no, nah, I don't believe that. So I would figure out more direct techniques all the time. So like when we talk about forging and stock removal, everyone who's forging has to do stock removal also. it's It's just you have to do it. Um, I do forge blades that are forged all the way down to none. And it's very obvious that they're totally forged shape because they're all, you know, you can tell the way they look, you, you know, it's not
2: yeah, the, kind of the brute, to forge.
1: Yeah. It's the brute, to forge, which is, it's the French word, just, you know, forged to finish. But so I'm going to take a pause on that. Cause I don't know if I was going off the map.
2: You're good. Unless like you need to hit the bathroom or something, in which case that's what I keep a bucket here for. I just pee my pants. Uh, see, you're a real man. <laughs> yeah, it's no big deal. <laughs> yeah, and to briefly touch on, there's some people that you know forge it thick, grind it thin, and there's some of the guys that they forge 90%. Like, when they're done, it'll kiss the grinder just to clean things up, and they're done. And that's, that's a difference in style. What are some of the things that define your style?
0: Hmm,
1: well... To make it really simple, um, I I used to be really interested in fantasy knives and I drew them and drew them and drew them and I loved um, oh gosh Gil Hibman. I thought he and he didn't design them actually he would just make them some other crazy guy Paul Ellers would design them, and I met Paul and I'm friends with all these guys you know and they're funny that's the that's the old the old guard but uh, I thought those were cool and I love swords but I make swords but I don't really you don't see them available for sale because they're pretty rare and um, they're crazy expensive. I usually trade them for like a Mustang 5.0 Fox body <laughs> or something like that, or, a, or, that's a, ever or an Airstream <laughs> or a fancy watch or something. But um, so my style would be, I like to make a practical usable knives that are, that are from the field to the table. Sometimes they're just historic anachronisms like a sword or, uh, like I'm getting into making slip joints and they're really, really, really specific. Also, I make my version of folders, however the hell I want to make them. And that's always a, a very interesting subject too. But when I make slip joints, I make them, I put some style to them, but I make them the way they're supposed to be made. And that's strange, but it also is, I do one-offs I have a knife-making company. I design knives. I have them made. I do um, knives with me and Josh and Tristan or me and Josh. And I have other people who will work with me in the shop to help me finish something. There's only one specific version of that, that I put the JK with the gear. That just means I I didn't do all of it, you know? So, I have different facets of the way I make knives. I make stainless knives that I grind. The Lord's metal. Yeah. (laughs) So... I, my, but my style would be recognized easily by these raised shark fin style clips and flared handles. When I was doing that, nobody was doing that. I, I, Nobody, they were making old school style Bowie knives, with plate guards and ferrules. And people would make, I hated the hunting knives. These guys would make a hunting knife and it'd be like a double guard hunting knife. That's so stupid. It's a, I, ne- I didn't like those. I never made those. I, I had those Heron knives, which I modeled my knife after. Um, I always modeled my hunters after his way because I skin a lot of deer with a George Heron knife and then later on my own. But uh, I like to make – I like to add style as a subtlety, and I want that to be functional and enjoying the the shape and the lines. But I don't put things on my knives that don't work. I don't put unnecessary things on my knife.
2: So, I mean, you talked about, like, the fifty seven. Chevy the the flares the the curves you talked about the Maori fish hook finding characteristics of your style is is that kind of flaring curve would that be
1: yeah I like that curves I like them look good my wife has got some super sexy legs and like a perfectly round butt so I try to make my knives kind of flow like that you know that's the thing I like <laughs> hey, I was like that they, looks like hot so.
2: there are several knife handles that I make that are she doesn't listen to this podcast anymore, so I can say it. That are completely styled on like the the waist, hip, leg curvature. Yeah, like that.
1: That's how you're supposed to make them. Man, th- that
2: sexy line is also like the perfect grip for a handle.
1: Yep. All all my knives are girls. All yep. my knives are girls. Yeah, all the swords over there, they're all girls. There's no boy. I don't make any boy. <laughs> but that, even though they might look masculine, they're all. Girls.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so you're working at the the rice plantation well thing.
1: it's just a it's like a historical plantation they don't you know they, they, it's their forte is tourism you know it's in charleston so
0: okay so you were doing that with the knife making and then I, yeah, why how did you grow from there
1: oh um so i got where i i learned the this the way things were out there and uh I would go to work when I knew people were there, and the boss was a retired Air Force colonel, and he's like, I need you to come in my office, Jason. We need to talk about something. I'm like, Okay, what's up? He goes, well, I'm noticing. You know, you're supposed to be here at 8, but you don't come in till 9 and sometimes 11 on certain days, because I see you clacking. I go, hmm? He goes, don't you want to get paid earlier? I'm like, no, nah, I don't really care about that. He's like, so could you explain to me why? I was like, well, see... If you look on these days, this is when we have the most guests, and they don't show up until this time. And if you look on these days, this is another special time where they'll show up. And I'd work sometimes I'd work on Saturday or whatever. I said, and these days I'm here early. See i and I'm not I'm not trying to pack hours in. I'm just trying to be here and do my thing and get experience and I'm enjoying this whole process. He goes, Okay, is there is there anything I can do to get you to show up earlier? What if I fired you? I'm like, Okay, great, fire me. He's like <laughs> He's like, oh, I'm not going to do that because we don't have another blacksmith and we really like you being here. I'm like, great, okay. All right, then I need a raise. (laughs) Yeah. So he was like, he's like, so you're just going to kind of do what you want to do. I'm like, yeah, pretty much. (laughs) And um, this is the funniest thing. This guy, Duke kaboom. He didn't really own it, but he was like, I'll tell you a quick story about this. All right. I shouldn't, I should leave the name out. But this lady who was there, she was She's like descendant of um, some of the people who were slaves at that plantation. She was wonderful. She was, I think she was 96 or 97. And she said, I'm Emma Charles, baby. I'll pick him up. He was clear. You could see right through him. You could hold him up to the sun. You could see right through him. I don't know why that was funny to me, but she, was, she lived there the whole time I was there. But he was kind of, uh, it was a super nice. I saw him hit a horse one time with his briefcase. He didn't know nothing about horses. And I was like, hey, what are you doing? I didn't know who he was. I would yelling at him. And uh, I got where once I had that red Mercedes Benz, I'd park it in his parking space.
0: <laughs>
1: I just drive. Nobody knew it was my car. I'd just drive it all the way and park it right up front. And I'd slip out because people, you know, nobody's paying attention. Because what I,
2: filthy Smith would be driving a red Mercedes?
1: Right, right. And uh, I remember one day he was like, Jason, you know whose vehicle that is? It's a it's a fine vehicle. I'm like I don't know, but I I think he's one of the guys who works in there. He goes, oh okay, well that makes sense. All right, well have a good day. And uh, uh, just, I'm gonna go get
2: my Apollo. I don't, yeah, I don't know about. It.
1: Yeah, but I, so I I worked there until I just got too busy. I would take orders back in those days, and they were stacking up. And I was like, I don't need to do this anymore. I'll just I'll just be at my shop. So I was, and that worked out great. And I I was working on that order for um, Sporting Classics, making those knives, which I'd done. I did it several times after that too, because that's a good gig, you know. And and you learn. You make a lot of knives, you grind a lot of knives, and you learn. You get better at it. So I, um, about two years in, I left. But the crazy part that I was have a hard time talking about was, I never forget the day I got hired, and you guys will never forget it either. Uh, September 11th, and that was the day I was driving in, and I was listening to all that going on. And I was like, "What's going on?" But that was the day they hired me. So that that's like a weird thing. And. Uh, I don't know if anybody's can talk about it without being bothered. You know, we're gonna have that all the time, but it was cool, and I'm glad I, I, you know, I'm glad I was able to work there. It was a great place. Now, my friend Quentin Middleton, I took him there one time, and <laughs> we had a fun time. <laughs> but it's funny, but Quentin is later story. I met him when he was like 18. I was going to pick up my friend Jimmy Chin from Taiwan, who is the first master bladesmith in Asia, as according to Jimmy. That's what he says. I just had to say it like Jimmy says it because it's easy to imitate the way he speaks English. Um, so we went into this knife store in the it was Northwoods Mall, and Quentin was in there. He was a helicopter mechanic. He was a, avionics mechanic. He was learning at, at school. He was, I think he was nineteen, think he was making all these kung fu weapons and stuff. I bought a cold steel katana there that day, and uh, I just we forgive you. Yeah, I wanted to just have something to go smash things with, you know, and I did. <clears throat> so that's when I met Quentin. And then it's crazy how long I've known him. I don't remember what year it was. It might. It had to be after 2007 because I'd already had gotten my master's rating by then. He would come and he'd come to my shop and he brought all these Kung Fu weapons and they were made out of lawnmower blades and stuff. I was like, oh, that's that's cool. That's cool. Bless your heart. Like, yeah, I'm a martial artist. You know, I'm a martial artist and I do these things. And I was I totally respected it. And he had some things that were nice. And I didn't at the time I didn't really know how to teach him. So I said, you know what? Just come to my shop and we'll grind some stuff and I'll show you how to grind. So I showed him how to grind some things. And then came in one day. He said, God told me to make chef's knives. I'm like, that's cool. I believe that. So he started making chef's knives. It was a very short amount of time before he had took his first round of clunkers to Craig Deal and Sean Brock and all these very well-known Charleston chefs because that was when Charleston was really hot in the in the food thing. And they would say, hey, Quentin, make it like this, make it like this, do it thinner, do it like this, do it like this. And so he did, and he comes back. He goes, I got it. He started grinding. And he was like, wait, man. I was like, don't you – yeah, so you like some, you live in a country, you got some guns. I know you got guns. He goes, yeah, I got guns, but I got a gold coin collection. I'm like, oh, really? You got a gold coin collection? You do right? that? Do say. So, so he goes, yeah, it's my heritage. And I grabbed his hands and I said, this is your heritage. I said, go sell them coins or don't, and get your grinder or never talk to me again. And he sold those coins that week. He bought two uh, Wilmot grinders from Chris. I mean, in a short period of time, every chef in the southeast had a knife. Oh yeah, everybody everywhere had a knife. He was making them and giving them to him. Whatever he had to do to get it out there, and then he was at the Food and Wine Fest. He had a hundred knives. He sold everything. He was he was just prolific after that. And he had a, he's got a really great mind for business. So Quentin was always able to learn quickly, adapt quickly, make something better, and then and then build it into something way bigger which I didn't learn how to do until recently. <laughs> I should have been listening to him back in those days, but that was my that's my Quentin Middleton. story. he's still one of my one of my best friends, you know. But he's almost 40 now. And that didn't oh, seem like it God. took very Ancient. long. Yeah. That's sarcasm by the way. Oh, I know. His 30th <laughs> birthday party was awesome. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to his 40th birthday party.
0: Um yeah. so you met or you were making knives between when you left the, the rice plantation place and Quentin. And then where did you got to be getting close to when you moved up to New York, right? Or no. So the,
1: so the the timeline thing, here's it goes. I, I I was at, there was two years at the, at the rice plantation. So it's about 2003 and I left there. All right. Okay. All right. And then between there and 2007, I had gotten my Journeyman Smith rating in the ABS, and then I worked, because I was a full-time maker, I didn't have time to just devote to making this stuff, but I made I made every kind of knife I could make. I mean, I, people would say, hey, will you make me this? And I'd be, yeah, would you make me that? And I got really well-known for making fighters. Fighter is kind of a fantasy knife that you imagine you're going to get in a knife fight with another dude with. But that's not how a knife fight goes. So, um, <laughs> so, so I, I got really famous for making them and i made really sleek styles and same thing um if you've seen the sabrals they make my fighter linra he makes a lot of people make that thing and in the meantime i got to be good friends with adam DeRozers. he basically lived with our family and he was a fledgling my maker and then i showed him the way i do stuff and then he and i together developed a lot of crazy fun stuff because he's such a good knife maker he understood the dynamic of forging and stuff really well so we were able to to work on a lot of fun projects together and we really had a great time we're like the blue people used to think we were a couple you know because <laughs> we hung out so hard like that
2: heterosexual life partner
1: yeah yeah and um and then he moved back to alaska he lived with us on and off for about two years maybe you he'd go to alaska and come back and he'd go fish or whatever and come back but um so then i did my master smith test in two thousand seven. And you had to present. You had to do a physical test with a Damascus knife. You had to present um, five knives to your peers, which are other people who are masters. And I got the. I won all the awards for. It. Like I won that year. I won a triple header. I won like best forged blade, best Bowie knife, BR Hughes Award, and the Bill Moran Award. I won a pile of them that year. Fun. That's great. That just means you got your. It's like you have all the basic knowledge of knife making now. It doesn't, that's not the end, but a lot of people stop there and then you never see them again. So when I, in 2007, when I got that, I was like, now, where can I go? What can I do? And um, then I started to teach after that pretty seriously. And I would teach for the, I teach for whoever asked me, actually, I, they wanted me to come teach something. I come teach it. Cause I'd, I literally had put uh, about, mm, I don't know. Now, since I've been making that full time since 2001, I got 37,000 hours in making knives at least. But, but I, blacker. I was doing it every day, all day long, every day, seven days a week, 10, 12 hours a day because I'm a student. I wanted to learn. I'm still a student. So, um, it, it I was, I was just making stuff as fast as I could make it. Uh, it was, there was hard and soft time. You know, sometimes people wouldn't buy anything. I didn't understand business. So, I didn't know how to deal with that then now it's easy to deal with, but I didn't know how to deal it with it and I just kept making knives and i'd, I'd win awards and I twenty see two thousand twelve I started putting fullers and stuff because I'd screwed something up, so I started putting them fullers and things and uh, that was like
0: ooh. were those forged or ground fullers. Uh, nobody
1: really f- – I mean, I forge them in now, but back in the ancient world, I would do a lot of research on blades that had fullers, and if they were forged in or not, and there wasn't much information. But what I could find is they were not. They were not forged yeah. in. They were scraped in or ground yeah. in.
2: Yeah, because displacing well, the metal.
1: And I mean, I got into – I did lectures on the whole purpose of the fullers anyway, and it has – if you've ever killed anything with a knife, and I – I've never killed any humans with a knife, okay? But, like, pigs and, you know, animals, um, that that doesn't – if you poke a hole in a pig, um, it just makes a really big hole. It makes a bigger hole, especially when the knife's two and a half inches wide. It's a, you can look all the way through them, in fact. If, if you're fast enough, you can make a big enough hole. So, I, that hole, the fuller being the blood groove is totally mm-hmm. nonsense. It just yeah. makes more surface area – it makes the blade lighter so you can have a lighter, stiffer blade. I did it because it looked cool. And then I later found out all those things.
2: The best way it was explained to me, it was like an, the Fuller made it like an I-beam. Yeah. It you, you stayed rigid, but you could take a bunch of material out so it lightened the blade. It changed the balance point, but the blade stayed rigid.
1: Yeah. What I noticed in cutting, because uh, also me and Adam did a lot of the early cutting competitions. In fact, we're the reason why they use cleavers now. Uh, We were using cleavers at one competition. Everybody realized that you have the same cutting width and you can see the blade more accurately. So that's why everybody started using cleavers, whether they know it or not. I know it because as soon as me and them went to one and we used them, then everybody else started using them. And that's great. That's a great thing. It's like you share this stuff. You don't say, well, it's mine and I want, you know, I don't care who gets credit for it. I just I know because I was there and I did it. I mean,
2: tip your hat to me, but yeah, but you do it. You you do you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just feel like you do your thing and you enjoy it. I don't protect. I protect some ideas, but nobody has seen them yet, and nobody's seen the ideas that I'm protecting. I share them with certain people, and we put it together. We make it, but all those things are fun. It's just part of knife making.
2: You don't do it for your ego. You do it. No. And then if people want to follow, then hey, yes, you know, hop on.
1: I hope so, and they do, yeah. But that the that 2012 was like a really a new place because I'd gotten a, I got that Wilmot, and I started putting fullers and stuff, and then I started asking myself like, why the hell am I making all these knives hand finished? They look so stupid all the time. It's you know nobody does that with a gun. You make a gun. The Colt 1911 in carbon steel and your hand finish it. Wow, look at that nice hand finish it. Rust instantly, right? <laughs> Stupid. So I started researching ways to make things black. And there was painting and there was Cerakoting. And I had met this guy who used to work for Purdy shotguns. You guys ever heard of Purdy's? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. They're really $100,000 guns. And he was like, well, lad, would we done. We'd put an agent on it, and then we would set it out of doors. And I'm like, huh? He goes, we really just you know, put like a vinegar, some kind of thing they had mixed up. It was a special formula that he, he couldn't tell me because he didn't remember. But they'd get it to initiate the rusting and the bluing, and then he'd put it outside, and it'd get rusty. And he'd take a an iron brush and card it all off, and then yeah. they'd just do it again. It, it, I was like literally outside he goes oh yes yeah, It's quite humid it would just it would just Rust up instantly and take Two three days he'd do this rust Bluing on there and it'd be like a mirror Blue and then you could buff it and it wouldn't Come off Huh? so I did that and I was like I couldn't get it to come off I was like It ain't coming off and it, uh, There was I was going to need
2: to edit <laughs> this whole section I feel like this is a circle of trust Just us kind of thing
1: Okay that's cool with me <laughs> <laughs> You remember that show? Um, there was the Black Keys and the RZA did this song. It's called um, "Baddest Man Alive." It's a really super cool song. And that song was playing in my shop, and I had this blacked out kukri, and I'm like, "I was like, oh shit, you ever do something?" It's like I could hear. You know, it was a home run. I'm like ah, this is cool, you know. So I <laughs> this made, is the one. Yeah. So that was when I started really. I made kukris before, but never like a really badass one. And that was like. I had made some that I liked, but they were most of them were hand-finished. But when I did that blacked-out one, I was like, whoa, this thing is – this is it. And I had made a lot of kukris after that because that was one of the hottest things I ever did. But the bluing
2: was kind of a an acid-oxidized, knock-it-off acid-oxidized until you get this impenetrable layer that you can buff out?
1: Yeah, the first one was just the the bluing solution. And then after that, it was just water. Huh. Just rust and I'd wipe it off And I'd water it takes about 24 hours I have a faster way of doing it now But you, know. but you gotta pay to learn that It was tricky I'm telling you yeah, I teach it in my school all the time But I watch people go back and do it and I was like that's not what I showed you What are you doing you know, it's, <laughs> it's kind of funny
0: yeah. uh, That uh, South well, Carolina humidity Helps out with uh, it Oh boy it was bad It's the key I'm, to everything
1: <laughs> I don't miss that It's even humid where you live
0: yeah, I, I'm in the foothills, so it's not too bad. So not by not too bad, you mean like ninety-two percent instead of ninety-five percent? Yeah, yeah, hey, like we 97. I mean, <laughs> ninety-five,
2: ninety-seven. It's not a hundred percent like it is down on the coast.
1: Well, right now, back home, I know that um, you have to run the air conditioner full tilt. Right now, here, I have my windows open and my doors open, and it's like fifty degrees outside, and it's wonderful. So.
0: It got up to 72 here uh, today. Pretty nice. Wait, up to? Yep.
2: Dude, there's a whole part of the country where the weather is
0: way better than that. It was 45 when I got up this morning. Do you like that, though? Yeah. I like the change in seasons.
1: I do, too. We have that perfectly here. (laughs) But not where Dan lives.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, I I I like the snow. I got a little concerned. I got up this, you know, I was going to the the gym this morning before the, the sun was up, and I needed a sweatshirt, and that that really concerned me. Yeah, I mean, I could have put the top up, but what? Who would do that?
1: Yeah, I ride my bicycle. You ride the I um, so I don't ride. I ride on like a mountain bike. I ride. I got like a bowl. Um, it's all earth, you know. So I got all these trails I've got around my house now. And uh, going down them is easy, but going back up them is not fun. Yeah,
2: you got to earn
0: it.
1: <laughs> yeah, you got to earn okay. it.
2: Um, okay. What's some advice you would give to to up-and-coming makers to kind of define their brand or grow their brand?
1: Well, that's a great question. The first thing is make a professional quality knife. Um, and that is something I see a lot of people not doing and getting out there and selling their knives anyway. And I'm like, don't do that. Just Make a professional quality knife first and then go try and sell them. But you have to—you don't have to make a bunch of different things. Only make what you want. That's number one. Only make what you want. And if it doesn't sell, then you don't have much future in it. But it makes something you want that other people want, too. Uh, I can't define what that is. But you can always make uh, utility knives and hunting knives. You know, those are always sellers no matter where you live. People like. Smaller knives, you know, most knives are smaller. Making big knives is really hard. Making kitchen knives is probably even harder because of the grinding, you know, it's very tricky to grind. So, yeah, don't start with kitchen
2: knives,
0: people.
1: Yeah, don't start with kitchen knives
0: unless you're a total psycho. The branding is
1: this um, you, you add if you want to, it's not easy to come up with your own style. That's that's a fact. You can add subtleties, or you can do a thing, or you can do this little super simple little subtleties. I've seen people do. With their knives, it's like, wow, that looks really cool. You know, I see that, and I, I think it's neat. But you have to be consistent, and you have, to have, you have to have discipline. And most makers don't have that. You have to have the discipline to go out there and grind and make and grind and make and grind and make. And, and, make. and if you put them out there, people are going to get them. But at first, you can't expect to get – you can get paid while you're learning and not much, but you can get paid while you're learning if you make a great knife. But your your biggest competitor is yourself. No one is competing with me. I don't give a damn what they're doing. I really don't. And that and that means I mean I'm not that I don't I like it. I like that they're doing but like it doesn't matter if it's another factory, another maker, another mid tech guy, another customer. I don't really care. If I like it and now, it's like, oh man, I like that. And I'll even share. It's like, man, this is cool. Look at this. So I don't mean it like I totally don't. I totally care if I like it. I don't care. If you if you want to compete with me, awesome. Do it. You're not competing with me. You can't. You have to compete with yourself. You have to be your worst. You're your own worst enemy. You're your own best competition. And if you can beat that guy every day, then you're winning. And that's like one of the biggest ones because back in the day, I remember – all of us makers would be like, Oh, this guy's got a better finish and that guy's got a better fit up. And I'm like, yeah, and I got crabby personalities. And, (laughs) and that's one of the things people buy you, they buy your personality. They see your knives. They like your work. You know, they want part of that adventure or that life, you know, and
0: the customer service stuff.
1: Yeah. That's a, that's a, and that's a tricky one. And then the other thing is don't take orders for things that aren't your knives. Just don't, get into that make your knives make it the way you want to make them offer them for sale don't take anybody's money <laughs> unless you already have them made Yep. and then you need a deposit it's like i got 13 knives i'm working on right now and if somebody wants one i'm going to have them put a non-refundable deposit on it which is not something i normally do it was like but if you want the knife and you're serious about it then i'll set it aside but i'm not fooling around if you back out you don't get your money back period and I'm not refunding that. You you know. Um that's one thing, but that's not a common thing. But I feel like you making a living doing this is really stupid. That's that's the best advice I can give somebody. This is Yeah, don't do it. it it's not a way to if, if you've got a good job and you've got a good career doing something, that's great. Do that, make knives and love it. I, I have a lot of people who are doctors or what are they, you know, they're really professional in their field and they make knives because they love making knives.
2: Don't ruin a great hobby by doing it for money.
1: Exactly. Because, I mean, I literally have, I just found out I have uh, 800 pounds of 410 stainless steel. And I'm like, what the hell do I have that for? Well, I, I get a I clad, I do the sandmai with it, you know what I mean? But then my friend Coy Baker, he goes, hey, do you have any 410 stainless steel? I'm like, Funny you ask. I do. I, <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot of it. Apparently,
2: but, I got drunk and bought a bunch of it.
1: Yeah. Well, it was, yeah, it was, I wasn't drunk. And, and I've got uh, a doubt. I have a ton of steel, a literal ton of steel to make stuff from because I know that steel is only going to go up and money is only going to go down. Doesn't matter who's president next, that's what's going to happen. Same thing with ammo or anything else you want to buy, any commodity is always going to go up, and dollars are always going to be worth less. So when I hear people who are learning and upcoming and they go, well, I can't afford that, blah, 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 blah. But then they're driving an the F-350 and they bass fish. I'm like, shut the hell up. Stop going to Starbucks every morning. You know? Priorities. Sell that stuff and go buy you some tools. Quit being a baby about this. If you want to really make knives, get a good grinder. That is the number one tool. Grind it. Take a class from somebody who knows what they're doing. Not, Don't take a class from somebody who's some amateur. I don't even want to call them a name. But, you know, they're out there having folks like, oh, I do classes. Come take me. I'll show you how to forge in, in coal and make, you know, knives out of railroad spikes. I was like, don't take a class from that guy. You ain't learning nothing like that. Go learn how to grind first. Then learn how to forge later if you want to do that. There's reasons to learn to forge. For me, I had to learn how to forge because I had all these things that I wanted to make. The only way I could figure out how they could be made was by forging, not by, I'm not putting magic in there, but I wanted to make steel and I wanted to make mosaics and I wanted to make integrals and I wanted to make stuff that I couldn't make unless I had giant blocks of steel to machine them out of. Even some of the knives back in the day, I mean, making these, I like to make two and a half, three inch wide choppers, you know, it's like. I going to get a piece of steel that big and I'm going to make that stuff.
2: Well, and some of the bolsters, some of the curves, obviously the, the forge weld patterns that can only come from, from a hammer. Like, yeah. You can only like come there's some that. sweeping patterns that uh, mathematically you can do on a grinder, but you just can't do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. When, when some of the people start too, I tell them some of the cheapest stuff in the whole knife making process is the steel of the knife. Oh, I mean your your handle material is more than that, and like your time putting into all that is like worth way more than the steel. So get something that's like everybody wants to like cheap out on the steel. It's like yeah. spend fifty bucks, get yourself something decent, and you got like three feet of it. And even my magna cut the belts I use to shape
2: that cost uh, more than the steel did.
1: Yeah, the, the one of the. Biggest pet peeves I have when I go to like a hammer in or something, is a group of guys like when you start learning, don't don't grind high carbon steel, cut out a bunch of blades and grind them out of mild steel. And I'm like, don't listen to that guy, don't listen to him, don't don't everything he just said, that's trash. Throw that in the garbage. Grind them out of carbon steel because it's going to grind very differently, and you You might get one that works. That's assuming they're going to all be garbage. I'm like. Nothing risk, nothing gain. I said, be being a, I mean, get in, mm-hmm. just do it. Buy the ticket, take a ride. You know, I'm not, I, I'm a real savage about this stuff. I don't fool around with these people. It's like either do it or don't do it. Even when they come and take a class with me.
2: And 1080, 95 it's not that expensive.
1: No, it's cheap. It's mostly garbage anyway, but especially 1095. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's trash. But oh, yeah, no. And it, it's, it's a, it's a junk steal in industry and, it's it's chemistry is variable from house to house that makes it and i don't know i don't know where it makes it anymore but certain steels are very distinct an example w1 is very specific because w1 will be used for drill rod or you know all kind of different little linkages and things that it has to have a chemistry industrial. industrial so it has to be specific and it's clean so that's a that's not a bad one simple but yeah Fifty-two, one
2: hundred, like the ball, bear, like the bearing steels, because they're going to be used for in dish, in
1: di- industrial applications. Yeah, the tolerances are really tight. Very complicated to forge and um, pull off for a noob. Not a good noob steel. But really, yeah, not a good newbie noob, steel. It's red short and a red hard, and, and get it too cold, and it's no good. Get it too hot, it crumbles. If you can. Got to be careful.
2: My first knife, my first knife ever was 52 100.
1: You
0: got, got a <laughs>
2: Took me three months to finish, but uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> nice. but there, you know, there's a lot of
1: the, the things in this as far as the advice goes. Is really number one, if you're interested, good, that's good. That's step one. Uh, take a class. I still take classes. I take classes. I'm taking a class. I'm making scissors with my friend Grace because I want to make scissors. Grace Horn. Yeah. I take classes with Tobin Hill to make slip joints. You know, Bill Rupert, all these guys. I would take class. uh, I want to take a class with Alan Elisha with folders because I want to know something I don't know. I know a little bit, but I don't know much. The day
2: day you think there's nothing left for you to learn.
1: Oh, yeah. I want to do engraving. It takes me back to the days of carving, but... I meet a lot of makers who, I mean, I know a lot and there's things that I, that I know that I was like, there's no, why bother getting into the minutia of certain subjects with somebody who's new because it doesn't make any sense and it doesn't matter. So when you start, it's like simple, direct shooting arrows. You know, I have a, we do a forging class. It's making that elemental chopper because chopper is big, but it's actually easier to make sometimes than a teeny knife so I do all the forging because nobody can grind and the more I forge them the the easier it is for them to grind it and then I show them that it's like a it's a real good physics knife it's like if you design this right it will cut your bushes and trim things and clear trails and that's why it's useful and that's why it's a cool piece but a lot of people who like make choppers I'm like they suck and it's like they ain't chopping nothing you can't even hold it in your hand, but it's just stuff. You know, all the ideas I have, I borrowed from other knives, you know, from knives from the Philippines or things like that. And um, you got to be a student. you gotta, you got to test stuff, you know. It's like, that's the biggest thing. Take a class. It's cheaper. It's way cheaper to take a class instead of buying a bunch of equipment from Harbor Freight and going, well, I can't make knives like they do on Forge and Fire. I don't understand. I did everything they did. Wow, that's a whole nother story.
0: I've got a Speed. lot of people that talk to me they're like, I've got uh, ten thousand dollars I want to start buying my knife equipment and I'm like, you should probably go take like a thousand or two thousand dollar class before you waste all yeah. of your money and like I don't really like this
1: Yeah. take a or you, class. Can classes. Or you can
0: sell me all your equipment for pennies on the dollar yeah. there you <laughs> go
1: yeah hey
2: buy a bunch of shit get frustrated because you don't know what you're doing and then sell it to me back at dollar.
1: I've got a lot of grinders, bro. i got I got three Wilmonts, too, I didn't even tell you about, but I do have three of them. Uh,
2: speaking of classes, uh, how many classes do you do a year like, I that do, you teach?
1: So that's a good question. Um, starting in September, I usually do two a month all the way through um, May. But I, but I will also pull those out and do private classes. So if I could do, let's say, if I have this month, I think I had two at the end of the month, I, and I got one I do as a volunteer. It's like a, it's it. I, I do a bunch of them, man, and uh, I like doing it. But I also, it takes me away from making knives. I make a knife in the class, and sometimes I finish one, all depending on how good the students are. But when I do private classes, like I'll do integral Damascus chef's knife. I've learned to make the Damascus before the class, so that we don't (laughs) don't have to take them through all that. Because they really just want to make the knife. Like we're making Damascus, they're going, "Uh huh, uh, okay, magic." So I hit it some more. Yeah, yeah. But it's nuts. And then I do a only Damascus class, so we make Damascus. You take all that stuff home, whatever you make with you, you know. Um, But I do things that are kind of fundamental. And then I I try and uh, enjoy the people who come, and some of them are really good students. Some, a lot of them are really good students, and um, they pay attention, they do their thing, and they make a great looking knife. Some of them are already makers. I've even had master bladesmiths come in here. I've had Steve Schwarzer come and took a Damascus class with me. I was wow. like, come on, Steve, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but i i feel like you always need to up your game if you are a professional in this on the business side of it one of my friends is one of the best knife makers i have incredible his full-time job is he's he's an engineer on the railroad so he works that for six months and then the other six months he makes knives and he doesn't need to sell any knives but he sells he sells knives and they're stunning they're freaking gorgeous you know so there's a lot of that but i say you got to figure out what to balance it out for me i was just not smart enough to not make knives so i had to learn how to do things and also i'm a now i'm a videographer director and producer of my own knife making documentaries
2: (laughs) uh what uh What are kind of some of the minimum skills that somebody needs to take one of your classes?
1: Uh, The minimum skill would be some dexterity. Uh, Funny enough, anybody who's come in here and can play guitar can grind like easy. Guitar players have no problem grinding. That's super easy for them. So they don't need
2: a lot of knife experience. They don't need any knife experience, really. I, I don't
1: need people to have any knife experience to take a lot of the classes that I do, whether it's just, Fundamental Damascus, or making a tomahawk, or a hatchet, or a chopper, or you know any of the forged things. Those are just forging. Those are really simple. Um, the Damascus, I don't. They don't need any skill for that. I'd rather i'm not think they know how to make Damascus. I'd rather them not know how to forge if I teach them how to forge because people do weird, smeary, dumb things. You don't have to unteach
2: all the bad habits they have.
1: Right. And if they learn it from some other master bladesmith, then I have to just call the other guys like, Hey, this is Jason. What's up? <laughs> you suck at forging. Come to my class. I'll try to do it. Like, what or are you, you talking s- about? I've been doing it for 40 years. Like, all right, fine. Bye. <laughs> or you suck at teaching. <laughs> yeah, you suck at teaching. I openly challenge anybody. I mean, I'm not, it's not a joke. If you, if you want to come and have a battle at a bladesmith's with me, it's like, let's do it.
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Back to willing to take some controversial stance in the industry.
1: Always. it's a, This is a learning thing, and we're all still learning. Uh, no matter how you make knives, we're still on the same team. We're still doing the same things. And I don't mind. Here's the thing. When you're an expert, you guys you know who Clint Smith is? Thunder Ranch. Okay. I love this guy. This guy has been there, done that. He's teaching you how to fight. He's teaching you how to survive a situation or, or and thrive in it. And it's brute force honesty. And there it is. And when I'm teaching, I don't need to teach. I'm, you know, we're not, this, I say life and death, but I'm teaching you the most honest, direct methods that I'm currently dealing with. I'm sharing them with the person so that they don't have to make all of the mistakes I made, they don't have to go through all the crazy things I went through and learn it yourself or figure it out on your own. It's just way more direct and simple. And when I have someone who says, well, I do it this way, I'm like, shut up. I'm not, I don't care how you do it. You know, if, if it's wrong, don't keep doing that.
0: Yeah.
1: And certain things like I, I like to learn cool tricks all the time. And I do, you know, I went to Tobin's, I learned some cool tricks. I'm, I'm sure there's. I learned them all the time, and that's the beauty of it. You know, like I just I saw something cool today. I was like, I never saw that. I never thought about that before. It was just cool things from other makers. If it works, do it. But if they don't know what they're talking about or they think they know, the worst is the people who think they know what they're talking about. Even with designs or making or heat treating, it's just, just
2: stop. I think it was Mark Twain that said, uh, it's not what you don't know. It's what you know that ain't so.
0: Yeah. What you know that ain't so good. Good Twain reference there,
2: Dan. I like, Twain. thank you. I'm an educated man. I done read my
0: letters. Mark Twain had some, some pretty philosophical things that he said over the years.
2: My favorite is, uh, it's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He was friends with Nikola Tesla. That doesn't surprise me. I don't know why he didn't write more about that. It's pretty interesting. I'm sure Westinghouse bribed him. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Fascinating stuff.
2: Um, If people want to sign up for your classes, Jason, do they uh, forge um, Night Forge Studio? Like, how do they?
1: Yeah, they just go to my website. Just go to my – click the link on Facebook or Instagram. It'll take you straight to my website, and you can sign up for a class. Um, and you I even have the seen.
0: online courses on there too right the, the yeah. video ones there are currently four i'm about to add another one hence the videographer yeah
1: so now i own the i used to work i partnered with a company and uh now I, now i have my own production you know i hire these guys to shoot for me and they edit but i direct it and I, You know, we produce it and all that stuff. So that's been a lot of fun, too. That's a whole other crazy fun thing.
2: A hell of a learning curve.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I will tell you about a fun thing that happened in 2010. Um, So in 2010, we were looking for something to draw people into the hammer ends, you know, the, the forging and grinding events that we had called hammer ends. So my wife, my wife. Was watching Iron Chef. My wife, not some TV producer who's sitting there. She was watching Iron Chef. She's like, man, this would be a great format to do a thing. So you guys ought to do like a battle or like you and Bert and you guys have a like unknown materials and they just give it to you and you have to, um, you have like grind two off or two or four of you to compete against each other and say, you make this knife and then you guys make it and you have a limited time to do it. And I'm like, yeah. So we started to do that in 2010, and that was called Battle of the Bladesmiths. And the first time that was done was uh, me, Burt Foster, Jim Rodebaugh, and this other guy, I can't remember his name right now. But we did it at Haywood Community College 2010, and that is the exact format you see on that History Channel TV show, Forged and Fire.
2: Yeah, I was going to delve into ABS and some of that stuff, but that feels like such a natural segue into Forged and Fire. And as Kyle's been so fixated on your year of penance in New York. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, actually, before we get into this, uh, the Forged and Fire uh, uh, segment is brought to you by Old Town Cutlery. Old Town Cutlery for all your knife making needs and where you can find some of the finest cutlery in the world. Brought to you by Dogwood Custom Knives and Cage Daily Knives. Remember to use... Discount to code KP10 for 10% off on all of your orders at Old Town Cutlery.
1: Where's that located?
2: Uh, that's in North Georgia near Dahlonega. <coughs> oh. And huh. They've got a phenomenal little brick and mortar, and then their
1: online presence is huge. Oh, cool. Check that out. Uh, and
0: they've got their Knife Toberfest coming up. Uh, I want to go. That sounds cool. Uh,
2: actually, they... I get a little frustrated because somehow it always find, falls on the same weekend as Blade Show West. But they do a phenomenal job. They have a local brewery comes out. One of the barbecue guys comes out. They do a phenomenal lunch. A bunch of the makers are there. Stephen Fowler, or not Stephen Fowler, Mark Hopper from uh Hammer.
1: Cool. yeah.
2: He is good people. That's who I made my first knife with. Cool. Yeah, I blame him for all of this.
1: He's very charismatic and enigmatic and larger than life, too. I really like him. He is. Good cat.
0: Good boy. Hey, he looks man. good in a dress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad um, you said that, not me. So we're up to, uh, you said that was around 2011?
1: 2010? 2010. 2010, yeah. Um, that was Battle of the Bladesmith. So we did that. Every year, they still have some people do it all over now. Um, they do the Battle of Bladesmiths all over now, but that, that was originated by my wife and myself, and um, we had a lot of fun doing that. Um, so that's kinda it kinda how I got fun. started.
2: <laughs> but how did you get started with uh, Fortune and Fire?
1: So they. Producer, I learned not to talk to producers since then. But so they called me and said, like, Hey, we're doing a show. Um, and what we want to do is a sword making competition between two Smiths. And this was 2014. And I'm like, Sword making, huh? And um, I was like, People just, there's like 10 sword makers in America <laughs> right now. And six <laughs> of them ain't going to talk to you. You ain't getting them on the <laughs> phone. I know them. And I just thought it was ridiculous. I was, like, I was like, you could do it. She goes, well, and I talked to her about it. And then I started to say, oh, and there's this thing that me and my wife did. Da, 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 da. So I tell them all about Battle of the Bladesmiths. That's the first part of the show. And then they go, well, if we did this show, uh, where do you think we could do it? And I was like, man, my buddy Dave Lish has got a place in Seattle right under the viaduct. He's got a big shop. He's got all this equipment. We could probably do it there. Oh, okay. You have Dave's number. I give him Dave's number. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, they're like, well, do you know anybody? This who is was how we kid? learn. I told her, I was like, all oh, these people. Da, da, da. So, well, what kind of swords do you like to make? And I, my favorite thing is, I like old, old, like two thousand year old and older swords, like like Roman style swords and Greek swords and like ancient Celtic and- swords. Yeah, and not the not the Pompeii picket fence looking dumbass one, but the older versions, the Hispaniola and the mains. You know, uh. so so they said, if we did it, would you? What about if we made a Gladius? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm down for that. And uh, she goes, okay, cool. And what's your favorite knife to make right now? I was like, ah, chopper. So, like, so we go to Dave Lish's shop. They fly us all out to Dave Lish's shop. And I'm like, hey, I'm a part of this thing. You know, I'm like, I know what we're doing. They flew me out. If, no, you're competing. And I knew I was competing because I'd been training to compete. So I, I, already, <laughs> I suspected that. And I, was, I was pretty sure. I was like, I know I'm going to be competing on this thing. So I was I how old I was at the time. I think I was forty. I just turned forty. Um, let me see. No. I don't remember. Maybe I was forty one. Hey yeah, it's years. I can't remember. It was back a couple of years ago. I was in my forties. Um so I was doing like a hundred push ups in the morning and a hundred at day and I was running and I was forging all kinda of weird shit. I didn't I was like, what about they gave me that? What, what if you can't do this? What if you can't so I was ready, it's like I was going to kill these dudes. I don't know who they were. I was like, You're gonna die. That's it. I'm, you're I'm all, not coming to you're be all friends. ripped and I'm coming to kill you, yeah. So uh we went and uh Dave refined it a little bit. Um but it was essentially the same thing. And then they had the second part of the competition was this thing. So 2014, I go in there and they're filming boards and fire. And the judges are um, Jay, who was, I didn't, I, I didn't know Jay real well, but he was, uh, he wasn't a very well-known bladesmith. Okay. Um, I didn't, I'd never seen him at shows, but once and Doug, who I actually did know and Dave Baker, who I didn't know anything from, but he makes props. Good dude. Just, you know, Prop maker, yeah, and then uh, the host was this guy named Cade Courtley, who was like, he took the longest time of anybody in the history of going through buds to get through buds. So, to so that was his that was what he said made him famous. I'm like, oh, okay, all right. but arguably, um, he made it, he made it, yeah. So, He's much respect.
2: the tallest midget, but
1: yeah, um, so. So when we competed, they gave us these discs of W-2. We're in Dave's shop. And they go, okay, bladesmith, you got um, – I think they gave us three hours. You have to forge this into your signature style. I'm like, these guys don't have a signature style. <laughs> I haven't seen <laughs> these three jokers before. You know what I mean? I don't know who they yeah. were. My signature
2: um, style is yeah. whatever comes like,
1: out. No, we have a signature. <laughs> so I forged a big recurve 14-inch blade chopper, and I put Koa on it. It was, um, I think we had two days. So we had the first one. All those guys broke their knives. They all broke their knives on the first round. I was the only one that didn't break their knife. Um, so they, they kicked this one guy, David Goldberg, out because he burned his face off because he's used to quenching the water, <laughs> burned his eyebrows off, oh. um, broke his knife. So it was me and this guy, Matthew Parkinson, and I can't remember the other dude's name. Right a second. And uh, so Matthew Parkinson made swords, made a lot of rules.
0: And so yeah. I got my handle on,
1: I was, I was done. My knife was like as done as I could get it. You know, it's like, that's the way I do it. You don't want, you got thirty more minutes. What do you want to do? I was like, okay, I'll just fiddle around. So I fiddle around with it. And polish was. I'll yeah. It. These guys were just screwing their knives up. They were just freaking out and screwing their knives up. Cause they're not professional knife makers. You know, they're not professional bladesmiths or, or, or they were good makers, but not, you know, they don't do it every day. So. <laughs> So, it yeah. ends up being Knife me out. and this guy, gosh, Harris, Matt Harris. He he actually died in that um, when Austin had froze. Die, he froze to death in Austin, Texas. Crazy, right? Shit. Yeah. So, it ended up being me and him going to the final. So, they sent us to our home shops and I made a mains pattern gladius, which I spent literally 10 hours drawing because I'm a nerd like that. And I was like. I had a week. So they gave me five days back then. So I managed to put about 90 hours into those five days and (laughs) I made a Damascus mains pattern gladius with a African blackwood handle that was correct. and And they thought it was one piece. And the other dude made a picket fence thing that he had banged up with a ball peen hammer to look like he had forged it. And it had a deer handler handle on it. We went to, somewhere where Soundgarden used to shoot videos in Jersey city and we had the competition and I won. I got 10 grand. I got to keep my sword. I got to keep my blade. And they said, well, we don't know if we're going to do it or not. It's just a pilot. So you keep it. And if something comes about it, we'll call It's kind like, of oh, cool. That was it. And like a year went by and then I see the advertisement for this fortune fire. I was like, wait a minute. They called me and they said they wanted me to appear on, so we want you to do Forged and Fire. Like, I already did Forge and Fire. What are you talking about? There's a producer calling me to come compete on a show. I'm like, I get out of here. That's stupid. And then they started doing the Forge and Fire season one, two, and in 2016, in the, in May they they I um interviewed for the job as the judge. And I knew I was getting the job. I just I, mean, <laughs> I knew I'm getting the job. So I get the job as a judge. They want me to be a judge. I think they had originally wrote like fifteen hundred dollars per episode. It took eight days days to make an episode, and I was like, "Like, uh, let me let me go. I got to go for a walk for a second. That that number seems wrong to me there. And they put twenty, so I got paid twenty five hundred dollars an episode, which is nothing for eight days in New York City, or compared to being in your shop, you know, trying to make a living. So I was a judge, and I it was I started in may i was there in may june july i didn't go home the whole time and uh
2: that's brutal
1: uh yeah it was just film 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 and then um they had like i went home in august and my life was kind of falling apart at that point really um you know my i was i was getting a little crazy i was going crazy like not real certifiably psychopathic or psychotic or anything but uh, I was doing dumb, stupid things. I was, I was losing my mind. I was losing my heart and, um, I didn't want to go back. So I went on all these adventures all over the country and then my friend added and they said, we're going to do the show again. We want you to come back. And I was like, stuff it. I ain't doing that. (laughs) And so I went to Alaska. So I'm in Alaska and I'm having a good old time. And they're like, we really want you to come do the show. And I'm like, and I was there for a month and a half and I, Separated from my family and everything, and so I went back and I did the show. I, I can't remember how many I was supposed to do six. I ended up doing eight or ten because it was a blizzard and Jay couldn't get back. So I went. I did it again. But they're like, at that time, I was, I was, um I was like, they're coming to get me. I called my friend Joe Penny. He's like, Joe, you got to get the guns. You got to get the boys. Come get me the hell out of this place. <laughs> I was going crazy. Well, I was smoking weed every single day. And I was super paranoid about everything. And I remember when I told Will, I was like, Will, I got to get out of here because I'll fly you home right now. I'll get your ticket home right now. I was like, I got three more episodes. He's like, I don't care. You got to get out of here. So um, I left and I I didn't go back again. And then I had an agent and they called me and they wanted to do like 40 more episodes. And I'm like, heck no, bro. I ain't doing that. I don't have enough soul left. Yeah, it was. And the thing is, is I'm not knocking the show. And here's why. It's a great show for entertaining. It's a game show. It has brought light to knife making and bladesmithing. All over the world has inspired people to get into it. And it's really been a great thing for our community as knife makers. But for me personally, it was miserable. It was a miserable, difficult time. Probably the worst time I've ever had in my life. Mostly self-inflicted. And um, that was the issue with the thing. It's not its not bad or anything. It is what it is. And people love it. And I'm glad that they do. I'm glad that they loved it. But what I didn't like is I went to Blade Show that year. And I mistakenly wore my kilt. And I couldn't take two steps without. And guess what? I hate that. And I can't imagine how somebody who's really famous in real life can deal with that. Because for the short amount of time that... That was going on for me like that. I was like, I don't like that. I, I didn't like it at all. Because you had the kilt
2: and the long beard too, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I start shaving it off, and then I'd get hate. I get hate mail.
2: Yeah, I threw shit at you. I was, I was kind of jealous. Yeah. <laughs> but, oh, there's that was, Jason Knight. I mean, he's not making knives. He's a, he's on a
1: show. Yeah, but so the, <laughs> for me the the frustrating part about it as a professional bladesmith who I had way more work than I could ever do. I was famous for my knives already. Then people exchanged that they said, well, you're famous for Forge and Fire. And I'm like, no, I was already known for my work. I mean, I was already influencing styles and makers and people and teaching and sharing, you know, I was already doing that. And I was hoping that the show would leap that more and help share more. But kind of until I learned how to deal with it, it was just, Kind of a troublesome thing for me, and now that I was like, I, I can deal with it pretty easy now. You know, it's like it's no big deal. I can, I can talk about it, and I can say, hey, you know, it, was, it wasn't a bad thing. It was just, it was at a weird time. It was kind of a interesting time, that, and
2: that that's time it. away from family can be brutal. You know, oh, that's
1: hard. Beth
2: you know. occasionally has a hellacious travel schedule, and it's hard for people to appreciate how deeply it affects you to be separated for that long yeah and, um, and you can do a f- a few days every week and it's no big deal but you start talking about months apart and it it really affects people on a deep level
1: yeah and then i went back home to my town and everybody thought i was i was rich now because you know, <laughs> you've got to be you know i was and it had been playing you know all those i did 28 episodes all together I don't think they even showed all the episodes that I did, but I did 28 of them. And, um, they, people in my town was like, well, you're obviously you're rich now. It was like $2,800. I mean, when I got home, there was no money. We had no money. We were broke when I got yeah. home. You know, when I got done doing the show. It's like, we were still it was just crazy. Cause I hadn't made knives in a couple of months. And, um, so yeah. I told my wife, I was like, let's sell our house and let's move somewhere. So we sold our house. I put it up in i got home and went back to the show from february march april i think i got home in may put a house on the market sold it in june wandered the country for six months and then ended up here in east tennessee and i then i started working for um daniel winkler at winkler knives with daniel and karen and i loved that that was wonderful i really enjoyed working with them a lot of fun I did a lot of designs there and brought in a bunch of gun companies. I knew a lot of people in the firearms industry. So I had a bunch of gun companies that wanted to make knives and they didn't know how to do it. So I did that for probably eight months or so. Karen's like my mom. So she fired me.
2: As mothers will do.
1: <laughs> She's like, you're so you're doing too much. You're um. this is not Winkler night. This is Winkler knives. I'm like, I know. i'm sorry she's like you're gonna have to do your thing i'm like i know so uh we started our school here my wife started our school um and we've been doing that since and i'm still making design knives and i started tactical elements not Tactical elements night elements my friend has jj has Tactical elements so i started night elements with aj and then that was just another facet and the school was another facet and then shooting the videos there's multifaceted thing allows me to actually make a living making knives instead of just like you know that's all i did was make knives before which
2: puts you at the top one percent yeah of knife makers
1: yeah it was really hard you have to make a lot of knives you can't i mean you have to make a lot of knives for all for every two thousand dollar damascus bowie knife somebody saw you make you made 40 hunters or 40 kitchen knives and you now, back in those days, kitchen knives weren't that hot i mean
2: there's There's some forty and sixty dollar knives out there that I made late in my apprenticeship that I would love to buy back like like it pains my soul to know that that knife is out there with my name on it
1: oh uh, yeah well i I've, I don't know I have some that I see them and I'm like o <laughs> <But, laughs> I will buy any – oh uh, here's a funny thing I'll do now. I've been buying my own knives back. Anytime someone pops up for sale, I'll buy it back. I say, I'll say buy it back for what you paid for it, and I'll refinish it, and I'll sell it for usually what I normally sell, like, what two, three times. It could Current be. price. Yeah. A There's
2: fun. a bu- buddy of mine in Atlanta. He's the chef that really did my – not really. He literally did my early R&D for me and was brutal, but I made some outdoor knives for him. And we'll be out and I'll see it. I'm like, hey, uh, you paid you paid eighty bucks for that knife. I'll give you three fifty for it right now. He's like, No. I'm like, I'll give you three fifty and I'll make you one at my current skill level. He's like, No. Dude, one day you might be famous and you <laughs> when you die, this is gonna be worth money.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I went past I got notorious. <laughs> I didn't get I don't think of it as being famous. I think about being you got infamous. Yeah, infamous.
0: Infamous. Infamous, yeah. It it's like all the,
1: it's all the things you just said combined. Yeah. But over that time, you you build like a certain confidence about your work and yourself and your worth. And that's another one. I I used to have a, there was just one purveyor, man. And every now and then he'd. He'd buy stuff from me all the time, but he'd give me, like, I need you to knock 25% off of it, and then he would sell it for, like, he'd sell it for way more than I sold it for anywhere. He'd like, I'm doing you a favor, and I was always getting screwed by this dude. And then uh, one day I had this, it was like a, it was a, it was a sub-hilt fighter. It was all black because, oh, I don't know when, this. this was probably 2013 or so, and I was like, I want to make, all those guys were making these, Quantum Damascus with engraving and ivory and they're getting five grand for it. I was like, I'm going to do all black steel micarta. I'm going to sell it for five grand. I was like, no. I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. So I made a super badass sub hill fighter. And it was like uh, not a lot of people in bladesmithing have made, not a lot of bladesmiths made sub hills, but I was like, I wanted to make the one you know, so I made this one and I had these customers fighting over it and one of them was a customer who was my customer but it was also his customer and i and my and he and the customer said don't sell it to him just sell it directly to me what do you want for it i said 5000 bucks he goes done he's he don't sell it to that jerk he's going to do the same thing he's like he's just going to steal 2500 bucks for it. he's going to get it for 25 and he's sell it to me for 5 i was like done. Hey, wait a I just minute. told it to him
2: I just made that 50% dealer markup myself.
1: Yeah. And and that guy got so mad at me. He goes, what about that knife you owe me? I was like, did you give me money? No. I took the, I was like, dude, I said, I never want to see you at a show. If you see me going, you turn around, you go the other way. Now I don't want, we don't want to see each other. Let's just stay out of each other's way. And I also, (laughs) I pushed really hard to kind of get him out of the voting at the, oh. the shows because he used to vote, you know, on the, the handmade awards. And I really was like, that guy should not have anything to do in that room. He should never be in that room ever, never. And he's not so good. It wasn't just me, but I, I glad I had a little bit of a voice in it.
2: Well, I'm finding a dealer is a really delicate balance between, I mean, everybody's got to make money in the deal. But a good dealer is out there, they're promoting you, they'll build they're building you up. Like that percentage that you're giving them, yeah. you're getting something out of that. That's right. The guy that just takes the percentage, turns around and sells it, he's not yeah. giving you any value. The guy that's out there promoting you and help building your brand, that's the that's the dealer you're looking for.
1: Yep. There's a lot of great ones. And I've got some great ones that I like now. They don't ask for a discount at all. They just like the opportunity to be able to get the knife. They, they go, I just want to get the knife. Just sell it to me for what you sell it for. I'll mark it up wherever I want to. i have go, cool. That's cool. And it yeah, only well, not me, all
2: of us are at the Jason Knight level. Some I know. It were... only took
1: 20 years. 20, well, 20, going on 22, three years as a full time maker now. But, so
2: there's hope for us.
1: Yeah, man. It's just, you got to be consistent. You got to, I've seen so many guys come and go in this knife making and it's always oh, did you see this new kid and this new kid this new kid this new kid this new kid, this new kid, this new kid. I was like I was like one of the first guys I met in this game was Tom Crine and Tom Crine's still making cool knives they're really beautiful They're crazy sharp and he can grind better than almost anybody I know Mike Stoney still doing it I'm still doing it Adam de still doing it um, Jimmy Kroll even is still doing it you know it's a lot of these guys some of the OGs from back in the day, which was the generation before me. That's a weird thing about knife generations. If you're paying attention to the history of it, even in, you know, so knife making is all encompassing. I don't go forging or stock removal. So the previous generation are the guys who were from the 70s and were very big in the 80s and getting older in the 90s and kind of faded out in the 2000s, okay? <clears throat> that's Those were guys, I knew those guys. I knew some of those guys. Moran, George Heron, There's a couple of those fellas. And uh, now they're kind of, they're either dead or they don't make knives anymore. And then there's that other group that started in the 80s, uh, late 80s, and went really big in the 90s and are through about 2007, eight, nine, and then kind of, their popularity isn't as big as they used to be because they never diversified, and that's another big deal. You have to be you have to become diversified or very specialized. Um, but if you only can make Bowie knives, they
2: better be the best Bowie knives ever
1: made. I don't I don't know. I mean, yeah. Um, and so that was another generation. And when I came along, there was nobody my age. I started making knives and like full-time in 2001 I was 27 I'm 50 now so there was no one my age and I was looking up to the like Steve Schwarzer and Don Fogg and Jimmy Kroll and these guys were guys I would talk to and back in George Heron still and some of the other makers but as I began in bladesmithing you know and, and other realms there were but back in those days it wasn't it's a kind of weird how it ebbs and flows what's hot and what's not and now it's You have to be like that, um, diversified. like you are able to make many different things, but you're really good at making many different things. You get really good at making a bunch of stuff. So when you make a kitchen knife, it's awesome. When You make a chopper, it's awesome. Make a hunter, it's awesome. Make a folder, it's awesome. That's the thing. You really kind of want to strive for that mastery, but it, it does take a lot of time. I don't think you have to make all those things. I think about the whole... The Slip Joint Cartel, I love those guys. That's a, that's one of the coolest groups in making knives right now with some of the oldest knife designs. made, You know, most of those patterns are over 400 years old, and they're not from America.
2: Yeah, and from a maker's point of view, bang for the buck, you make way more money with folders than you are with fixed
1: blades. I mean, that's just – Yeah, it's, it's, it's popular. It is more what it people is. can have them. You know, that's well, what I got in my pocket. I well, got a and Tris you think, Williams. I got a Wilmot. Yeah. Oh, nice. I cut the hell out of myself with that the other day.
2: Well, and you can have everything from a working <laughs> knife to pocket jewelry and a folding knife where there's a lot of places you can't take a fixed blade. Yeah. And all of those places are wrong. And you should never go there because I make fixed blades. And you should never go anywhere. You can't carry one of my knives.
1: All the places that you're not supposed to carry guns. I carry guns anyway. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, can, I can't let you be responsible for my life. You stupid. Um, this is my, a piece my son made. Oh. And he's been making knives since he was about eight. I like those lines. And my daughter has two, but she really got serious about it when she was 16. And she'd been full-time maker since she was 16.
2: I think the first time I saw her work was, uh, Late show west the last year it was in portland
1: yeah that was that was it yeah she had an integral damascus hunter yep that was i haven't seen her make another one like that actually (laughs) it's really good she made the damascus and everything she was 16 then
2: yeah which kind of pissed me off a little bit
1: but they were just they were always doing stuff they're always making things i never told them no in the shop they're like well, we're gonna go in there and make a sword, Dad. Okay? I was like, Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Okay, man. Who drink all my beer? I don't know. Well, about that. They <laughs> <laughs> didn't do stuff Don't, they were don't good touch kids. it when it's hot. Yeah, they they were good kids. They used those hammers and those presses since they were little. Tiger Lily didn't get really into it until she was sixteen. But Tristan had been forging stuff when he was a. He was a professional blacksmith and fabricator for about about three years, I think. Um, we had moved up here. And we were wandering all over. And he was down in Charleston doing a lot of work down there still with a friend of ours.
2: That's not a little thing.
1: No. So Tristan's wife
2: also makes knives, And she's really good. Having kids in the shop, I had uh, Jack, my oldest. uh, Mark's shop used to be near my house. And on a weekend, we were going to come down there. And I had given him the whole lecture of just because it's not glowing doesn't mean it's not hot and Mark was showing us how to make like little arrowheads and we were making some arrowheads and one went wrong and we set it aside. I don't know why, but I heard like tink, like a little piece of metal being dropped. And I looked over at Mark. And I'm like, did he pick it up? And Mark's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. And about that time, the, the, the smell of roasted pork kind of <laughs> wafted through the shop And I turn around and he's looking at his fingers and he's like, it doesn't really hurt. And, you know, we stick his hand down in the quench barrel. He's like, I think I'm going to be fine. It doesn't really hurt. And we're looking at each other. We're like, three, two, one. The shock is wearing
1: off now. And then he's like, oh, dear God, it hurts.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That shot of adrenaline.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's funny. (laughs) <laughs> so it's gonna happen. You're gonna know, you get hurt. The, the things I hated the worst, the worst injuries I hate wasn't getting cut, was getting something in my eye. Oh. But I got to be a master of getting stuff out of my eye. I remember the first time I got something in my eye, I was at college of Charleston and I was foraging on some this was this was in the nineties. This was like ninety two, I think. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just banging on metal. I was taking a sculpture class there and I got something in my eye, so they sent me to their their Students that were doctors, and uh you could see it, and they were like, "Well, let's just see. just." They were like prying my eye open. And they were sticking. I go, "I go, you got a magnet?" They go,
2: "Yeah." It's it was the a giant drink. black thing in my eye. It's yeah, right, right there. there.
1: And they went and they got that magnet. And I was like, "Now just clean it off." And they it got close and it went. Like, oh, that worked great. And they put a patch, and they had a big patch on my eye like this. And I said, "Now leave that on for three days." I'm like, "Okay." I walked out. I was like, Argh. "I was like, that's stupid." But after that, I tried to really study on how to get things out of my eye. I, man, I had
2: uh, I'd gotten kind of sweaty, and I probably needed bifocals, and I hadn't gotten them. And I took a chip off of a bandsaw, and it hit my eye, and I blinked it out, and I thought I was fine. And it was on a Friday afternoon. It was when Beth and I were dating, so she didn't live in Atlanta. We were in a hotel. And I was sure I was fine at like six o'clock in the morning. She went into the bathroom and turned on the light. And I'm pretty sure somebody stuck an ice pick through that eye. Yeah. Like I went from fine to not fine in fractions of a second. It was it was a lesson on I, I don't mess with these. I'm now full face respirator.
1: Like there's that's a, one of stomp my stomp
2: on my feet. Stab me, I don't care, but stay
1: away from my eyes. I get these glasses from a company called Gators. First time I saw Burt Soren had them, and I knew all these guys that were in a whatever little group, and they all wore them. And like it, it touches your cheek. It touches your eyebrow. It comes all the way around. I've not got any issue in my eyes ever since I've been wearing them. I mean, zero and they're expensive, but I want to buy them for everybody in my family. I want to get all the kids them for Christmas. So I was like, you've got to wear these glasses in the shop.
2: No matter what they cost. It's less than an eyeball.
0: Oh, it's less than an eyeball. Yeah. There's so, don't so many eyeballs either.
1: No, they're hard to get. They're really difficult. <laughs> yeah. to get. Yeah. Especially if you want them to match. I think it'd be cool to not match, but, um, uh you guys
2: I've got a friend that's got one blue eye, one brown eye. Oh, that's cool.
1: So he's only half full of crap. Um <laughs> I uh my friend Liam, they wear I, I wear an apron a lot of times too, because I used to just yeah. dry my clothes, but um Liam and his shop he's making axes. Liam Hoffman is a prolific axe maker. Yeah. And uh I'm gonna say probably the most prolific handmade axe maker in America. He makes a lot of axes. It's crazy. And the quality, they're, they're like, the same. It's the same. It's the same. They're using really big, heavy forging equipment. So him and this other friend of ours, he works for, for Liam, they're in a the shop, and some piece of shrapnel flies off like a die or something and hits this kid in the leg. And, like, it disappears in his leg. And he is bleeding. Like, it's just, and he had to go. So I was, like, after that, it's, like, we're wearing aprons all the time because they weren't wearing their aprons. What if it hit you in the junk?
2: <laughs> you just got to explain it to a guy in language he understands.
1: Yeah, you got to. That's the thing. I, I have this bad habit when I'm teaching and I'm grinding stuff. I'll go like this. <laughs> I hold my breath for three minutes, you know? So I know I got too much gunk, junk in my lungs. Like I, I know they're good still, but like, it's not a good thing. It's not a thing. I should do. Then I go stand in front of the fan like, what are you doing? I was like, I hold my breath when I'm grinding. I still do. Even if I'm wearing a mask, I'm still going. And I'll just hold it as long as I can. And I'm like, I'm gonna do that one day, I'm gonna pass out right there grinding. I'd be dumb.
2: I, I've caught myself with I just need to touch something up. And I'll take a deep breath going into the grind room grind room and I'll start to grind. I'm like,
1: Whoa, 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 stop right there. Yeah. Open that's, up the that's door. Everywhere. That stuff's <laughs> everywhere. Catch my breath. <laughs> That's the thing you can see. You got to get a good dust collection system in your shop because yeah I have my truck topper is in the truck in the shop right now. I took it off to put a motorcycle in the back of it. I was on a rescue mission Um and I can grind something. I'll blow it off. I go back. I was grinding at some logger G10 or something. Oh, yeah. And I turn around. It's covered again. It's covered again. I'm like, it's everywhere. The steel ain't. Carbon steel, this is the weird thing. It is nearly, if it gets in your system, it's the real fine dust. The real heavy stuff goes straight into the ground. If the fine stuff gets in your system, it will almost oxidize instantly. It's, 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 it rusts and it doesn't turn into anything. Uh, I've even had x-rays just to make sure. I'm like, am I good? They're like, yeah, I'm good. But um, you if you grind stainless that way, you can get chromium poisoning. Yep. Um and I've heard of guys getting chromium poisoning. I've also heard them getting chromium poisoning from a uh, green buffing rouge, you know, so they're grinding where the mass and yep. buffing rouge. <clears throat> it could kill you, but if you get it in time you won't. The most dangerous stuff of the grinder is the abrasive residue coming off of, of the belts. That's really the well, kind of with the coarser belts. But I I studied it pretty diligently and I was like you wear a rest not a dust mask you gotta wear a respirator or a full face i really want one of those um it has like a i don't know what they call it. it's got oh, like the
2: a forced pack. air ones
1: yeah i want one of those yeah i just that's my next step i should buy one but my new shop i'm building they're I'm, air conditioned yeah they're air conditioned i'm gonna make a grinding room all the grind it'll all be hooked up to a something that sucks it outside you know and that well, is a big deal to me, I well, just it keeps the dust from all over the shop.
2: Well, and grinder's lung is a thing, and some of those handle materials, the special, uh, especially uh, carbon fiber. Oh yeah, when that stuff gets in, It'll it come doesn't out. come out. Yeah. It just sits there in your lungs, taking up space. Yeah, it didn't come back out. That's true. Um,
1: there's a lot of interesting ones that like. So in my class, I use uh, curly maple. And maple is one of the only woods that's not poison in any way. <laughs> so if you do get some in your system, it it ain't gonna make you ill, ill. But like uh, I used to grind coca bolo, and even with Oof. respirator and all that stuff on, I would it was fine at first, but I got more and more allergic to it. And I always tell people, it's like you will develop an allergy to it, and eventually, like now, if I smell it. It will make me want to vomit. Like I want to throw up if I smell it. I mean, it instantly just turns my. I'm like, <laughs> you know, but there's a lot of stuff I don't. I don't. I don't make things out of stuff just because it's popular. Someone says, "Well, you should do." It. I was like, "I don't. I'm not using that shit. I don't. I used to like the old ivory, like the old ancient fossil. You know, we call it fossil ivory. It's not fossil, uh, but it's just old
0: stuff like that, huh?" Like the mammoth molars?
1: Yeah, I don't use the molars. I use, like, the the walrus tusks that wash up on the beach. You know, those are really beautiful. And I used to do that a lot, and they were beautiful. But I feel like it's, like, it ain't hurting anything because all this stuff's been dead for thousands of years or hundreds of years at least. Beautiful. It's very expensive. It's very stinky. Oh, God. Yeah, like sheep horn. You know, there's some there's some really great feeling sheep horn handles and I think it's neat material, but it smells like it's bad. It's like, if you
2: want born uh, horn or bone for me, I am going to charge you so much that you'll either not buy it or it's worth my shop smelling like burnt hair for three days.
1: Yeah. I don't use, I, I will use, I get some stag, this guy, New York shed antlers. This stag is incredible. It's all um, it's all European red stag. So a, a red stag is a deer the same size as a white tail, but has a rack like an elk, and they're real dense. Yeah, really, really beautiful, bumpy popcorn, beautiful stuff. I don't know what to use it on. I get it, like I want to. You got to build the knife around that kind of a thing.
2: Yeah, as long as my shop doesn't stink, I'm, I'm okay with it.
0: Yeah, open the door. you get off the track. Thing.
2: It's 98. Oh, wait, no, I don't have air conditioning. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's still, man, that stink gets into, like, the nooks and the crannies, and it's it's there. Like, you come in the next morning, and you turn on the lights, and you're like, oh, good God, what happened? And, oh, yeah, I, I, I ground bone <laughs> yesterday. Everywhere, yeah.
1: Some of that stuff I said. My favorite stuff is G10, micarta, stabilized wood favorite woods african blackwood i have a pretty good supply of it and i know where to get more when i go down there i literally I, I, it's hard I, I go get it from this place in north carolina it's, it's hard to get out of there under a thousand bucks and it ain't much wood
2: yeah kyle is flashing the wrap it up i have to um edit this in real time light. Uh, two hours and thirty minutes is like the the magical point for Kyle when he's like, "All right, look, I, I'm not doing anymore." <laughs> so we may have to come back and turn this into a a, a part two show with Jason.
0: Hmm. You guys Skip have
2: to get so tired too. Yeah. Yeah, we've uh, I've been doing the whole W thing, getting ready for Blade Show West. That's Blade Show West, October sixth, seventh, and eighth. Did Alicia pay you to say that? <laughs> she did not, but I got a really good table this year. So yeah,
1: good. I had to bow out on that. I I gave my table to an up-and-coming maker who I like his work, and I've worked with him out at Kilroy's before. I was like, hey, man, I'm not going to be there. I want to give you my table. He's like, you want to give me your table? I'm like, yeah. He goes, can I buy it? I go, no, you can't buy it. I said, like, you can have it this one year, but I'm going to have it next year. So I just want you to know. I just I couldn't get there i'm working on a new shop so i can't do both and i thought i'm like 60 days behind because i gave these people 60 days to clean the building out of course it took 60 days right yeah (laughs) so i thought it would be done sooner than it wouldn't so i'm just working on it and getting in there november i hope to be in the shop and i working and enjoying it that's walking distance from my house i need you to be there
2: by january because i'm coming up
1: okay good we're um, have a good
2: time. Shelly and I worked it out.
1: We'll we'll right. tell you about it later. Cool, it's cool with me.
0: <laughs> All right, uh, people want to keep in touch with you. Uh, where should they find you? Night Forge <clears throat> Studio. Yeah, uh, let, let me
1: uh, <laughs> let me look it up.
2: <laughs> That's an honest man right there. Um, I, I never email myself. Why would I know that?
1: Nightforgestudio.com. <laughs> com. You can follow me on Instagram, which sucks. You can follow me on Facebook, which is pretty awesome still. I don't know why. I don't understand what happens with Instagram. I, I do something and four people say things they shouldn't say. And on Facebook, it was like, wow, that's cool. It'd be 400 people. I'm,
0: that's super cool. Good to see you.
1: Like, I don't know.
0: It's Whatever whatever gets pushed at the right time. All about the algorithms now.
1: And I have to say, I. Kyle, I, I do appreciate your introducing the whole tungsten ball hammer. That's a that's a great contribution to the culture. Even though you know maybe it was something there already, but I like the way you did it. I like that you're sharing it. I like that you're making it available. It's very cool.
0: Yeah, very I, cool. I didn't I didn't invent the technique. It's just something that Kyle's um, little hard I balls have changed
2: and...
1: the industry. Cool. <laughs> the man with the balls Dan, that that paisley blue jacket that is a i think that's a good contribution i like that too i also love paisleys and um i decided not to wear my jacket cuz that's the jacket i brought and it's like well he's wearing that oh
2: jacket. man we would i wish i had known i could have i could have changed i got a rose
1: pattern as well it's a different kind but i just figured i'd let you
2: own the paisleys Jason's referring to my uh Euphoria, which is a food and wine festival here in Greenville, my euphoria jacket, which was iridescent blue and black paisley this year dope.
0: that's right. what we called dope why 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 was there no pictures on your instagram of that uh there wasn't' that's all he wore
1: no I mean he wore that and that was it
2: because <laughs> I wasn't taking pictures of me Shit, I really <laughs> didn't post that all right i'll I'll jump in the wayback machine and find some uh I'll find some pictures to post.
0: All right. You can keep in touch with the podcast at knifeperspective.com. You can find the podcast wherever you're listening to right now, because that's probably what you're, you're listening to. Uh, you can keep in touch with Dan Eastland of dogwood, custom knives at dogwood, custom knives.com dogwood, custom knives on Facebook and Instagram. Dan at dogwood, knives.com is the email. And you can keep in touch with me, Kyle Daly, cage, daily knives at cagedailyknives daily KH cage, daily knives on Facebook. And you can uh, find all of our sponsors again, Old Town, Atlas Materials, Jantz, and Phoenix Races. Make sure that you let them know that we appreciate them sponsoring the show and make sure you can discount codes to save you some money on things you are already buying already. So
2: help you help us help you. That's all I'm asking for.
0: Thanks again, Jason. (laughs) And uh, say good night, Dan. Good night, Dan. Good night, Dan.
1: <laughs> well, let's take it to the edge, because that's what's expected in this discussion. This is the night prospective. Let's get to the point. We're going to talk about our big now. because that's what's expected.